I mean, the first thing I'd say is what I sort of write in every book, which is there is nothing to fear but fear itself. Do not let fear control your life. You're either in fear or you're in faith, one or two. And I think if you just try having some faith, trust the universe, follow your dreams, you'll start to see results. Uh, but you just got to have that trust. And the second thing is the young creatives, like, please, please, please follow your dream. Do your creative. Don't chase the money. Because I, in 35 years, have never once woken up and been like, ugh, I got to go to work today. Not once. I get paid and made a living doing something I love to do. I wake up every day and be like, oh, I'm so excited to go create. It's such a gift. You know, we only get one life. And I definitely don't want to be 70, 80 going like, oh, I wish I always wanted to go here or do this. I always wanted to take pictures. Do it. Life's so short. It's precious. You have today. Forget about all your yesterdays. What are you going to do today? That's it. That's Michael Muller. And this is episode 552 of the Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. If you're into great white sharks, or even if you're terrified of great white sharks, if you dig great storytellers and creative geniuses, then you, my friends, are in for a treat because today's episode is absolutely killer. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in Fleetfoot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem 
a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Have I mentioned that today, finally, after obsessively trying to make this happen for a very long time, I've got the great Michael Muller on the pod. Michael is, how do I describe this? He's like this larger than life, almost Hemingway-esque character who has lived quite the extraordinary life. He's an extremely talented artist and a charismatic figure who has packed millennia of adventure into his mere five decades here on earth. This is a guy who traveled to 60 countries before he even entered high school, a count that's currently at 200. And after spending the greater part of his childhood living in Saudi Arabia, a passion for photography blossomed. The more he saw, the more he felt drawn to capturing his experiences in photographs. In his mid-teens, his passion quickly turned into a career, documenting initially the snowboarding and punk rock scenes across California. And by the time he was 22, he had established himself as a leading Hollywood entertainment and fashion photographer. Today, Michael is the top dog in his game, straight up. This is a guy who has photographed everyone for every prominent media outlet out there from Vanity Fair to Esquire. Joaquin Phoenix, Brad Pitt, Jeff Bridges, Robert Downey Jr., Gwyneth Paltrow, Scarlett Johansson, Nirvana, Leonardo DiCaprio, and everybody in between. The question isn't who has he photographed, it's who hasn't he. That iconic photo of Kobe Bryant bowing that graced the cover of Time Magazine back in February, that's Michael. That iconic movie poster or billboard that you love, chances are that's Michael too, the man behind countless studio campaigns for everything from 
all the Marvel movies to Inherent Vice. But, and here's the thing really, Michael's truest passion and a primary focus of today's conversation is sharks, specifically great white sharks, documenting them on film, understanding them, educating others about them, and most importantly, preserving them. It's an obsession that led him to invent and patent a studio lighting system, which he now takes with him underwater to light the ocean life in ways never seen until now, shooting stunning and really surrendering photographs of these apex predators. He's currently transforming this imagery into an extraordinary virtual reality experience. He gave me a taste. It's really unbelievable in the hopes of dispelling the many myths about these creatures and helping people to overcome the common fears that we have about these creatures. In addition, Michael has partnered with Dr. Andrew Huberman at Stanford, who you'll recall from episode 533, and also who helped make today's episode happen. Thank you, Andrew. With this VR technology to help people with PTSD and anxiety. And finally, Michael is an avid philanthropist. He's worked in many capacities as a United Nations global advocate on behalf of refugees. He's also the co-founder of Kids Clicking Kids, which distributes cameras to children in hospitals and encourages them to photograph their world and many other philanthropic pursuits. So this conversation is many things. It's a recap of Michael's unbelievable life, which is more adventure novel than resume. It's about creativity. It's about what drives him, his philosophies on work, passion, service, and the power of the image to shape culture. It's also keenly focused on preserving our oceans, specifically protecting our sharks. Over 100 million sharks are killed every year. And that number is really shocking. To put it in perspective, sharks kill about five people per year. Five people per year in comparison to the 100 million sharks that we kill every year, it's unreal. These apex predators are beyond vital to our ocean's ecosystem. And without them, as you'll soon learn, our oceans will crumble. But aside from environmental service and preservation, I really think this conversation is about what the great whites represent, which is fear. And the only way to overcome them is to move towards them. Yes, I'm talking about literally swimming at them to face them head on. And it is with this that I give you Michael Muller. So I feel like we just had a whole experience together before the podcast. The experience. We had a uh, we we tried to get the VR working, the shark VR thing. We might be able to get it working mid podcast, in which case we'll take a break. But I really wanted to see that before we talk today. Technology, I gotta know, love it, right? It's crazy. Well, I was just saying, like, yeah, the whole Oculus thing is at a certain point where it's amazing, but also not super user friendly, or it's kind of janky, right? Well. I'd say this, if your sons or my daughters were here, uh-huh. you'd be watching they'd, it. Yeah, right? <laughs> right. They'd have it figured you'd out be for watching sure already. It. Our, our generation, yeah. yeah. I don't know if I it's know. the tech or just us, but yeah, I mean, you know, that's why Apple's been so successful in my opinion. Simple. Yeah. Easy to use. Really, you know? the user interface is always super intuitive. Yeah. Whenever I'm making like websites and stuff, I tell the developers and even ad clients, I'm like, people are 
they're not dumb, but they're impatient. Like you got to be, you know, when they go to a site or something, you got to be able to get to it real quick. Yeah. You're trying to figure stuff out. You leave. I know. And at like 53, forget about it. You know, right? that ship has sailed. So <laughs> leave it to the kids. Well, listen, man, I'm, uh, I'm so excited to have you here. I've wanted to talk to you and meet you for a really long time. So thank you for coming out. I appreciate it, man. man my pleasure. Um, this morning I woke up and I opened up Twitter and I went hit the, the discover tab to just see what the news was. And the number one trending story this morning was a shark attack on the Gold Coast. Did you see that? No, I was about to make a couple jokes in my head. I was yeah. like, yeah. it could have been political <laughs> yeah, jokes know, just going on firing. But that actually makes my point even more strong, which is that, you know, the shark attack will always be the number one story. Despite oh, all always. the craziness going on in the world right now, always. that's the number one story. And what got buried in that, because I was reading about it, um, surfer, you know, attacked, lost his life but it was the first shark attack like on that whole coastline in like over a decade. Well, it was and like that doesn't get a couple of weeks ago because right. I was just like, I went to the Hamptons a couple of weeks on the East Coast and that everyone was talking about it because the woman, you know, uh, got killed mm. a couple of weeks back. Right. First time mm-hmm. ever a shark attack. You know, this guy that you're talking about got attacked, lost his life or whatever. But if you look, you know, it's the first time in 10 years, Probably before that, that might have been the first one. Like the numbers are so right out of whack. So of one whack. thing you always say is like, yeah, when you we were all terrified of shark attacks. I swim in the ocean all the time, open water swimming, and the, everyone is always like, "What about sharks? What about sharks?" Yeah, you have to bear it in mind. But the thing that you always say is there that we're killing a hundred something like a hundred million sharks 100 a million. year. Yeah, and that's probably- And then how many shark attacks are there a right, year? So the, well, there's five deaths worldwide on average, uh-huh. five. 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 And you think about the probably trillions of people that are in the ocean in that year, trillions, not, mm. you know. Um, what I do, because I'll, I'll be out surfing, you know, out here in Point Doom, especially if it's like a gray, cloudy day by myself or, you know, only one other guy out, and I'll get the heebie-jeebies. Because I'm fine, you know, when you're under, when I'm diving, I can see the sharks. Like I know my environment. I'm yeah. not here. When you're on the surface. You don't know what's that's, going on. That's when they tear. That's but, the fear because you can't see anything. And that deep, which is what led me to sharks to begin with, that deep, you know, ingrained fear that I have of this animal coming and attacking me. I'm like, oh, I can feel, like I'll have the heebie-jeebies. Like I can feel a shark in the area. I'm going to get attacked. It's going to bite my leg right now. And what I've learned to do, this is my trick to get that to go away, is I go, okay. I am more likely to win the Super Lotto twice this month. Not once, twice. More likely to, for that to happen uh-huh. than for a shark to attack me right. right now. And when I do those those facts, it goes away. And I'm like, mm. okay, it's you know, it's not gonna happen. Yeah, but Jaws. Well, and if it does, you know what I mean? Like if a shark does attack me, and if I die, so be I'd much rather die by great white death than by cancer uh-huh. <laughs> or any of the other <laughs> Seriously, I mean, you know what uh-huh. I mean? Like it's going to be quick and- uh, There'll and be a good story. You just sort of let go and let the thing chomp and I'm going to help right. the circle of life and I'm going to feed this animal that's, mm. I don't know, just acceptance of if that's the way to go. It actually is not that bad of a way to go, I don't think, yeah. compar- comparatively speaking. Do you know uh, Paul DeGelder? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've had him on the show. He's a buddy. And it, it's just so cool that somebody who literally almost lost his life as a result of that 
has now devoted it to the preservation of the animal that almost killed him. Mike Coots, Bethany, you can go down the mm, yeah, list right, of exactly. shark attack victims. Pretty much 99% of them are always going to seem to always come out the other side uh-huh. supporting the sharks. Conservation, you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I don't blame the shark. Right. Rarely do you see someone that like lost their leg and they're like, I hate sharks. I want to kill them all. Like, I, I haven't seen that yet on the news when you see these people. It's a weird there. thing, right? That somebody who was almost killed by this animal then develops like a yeah. love affair with it. Well, how many dogs, how many people died by, you know, dogs right. this year? I guess, yeah, Seriously. I guess. Icicles, so you- icicles kill 670 people a year. Icicles, not kidding you, falling from mostly in Russia, but uh-huh. 670 people die from icicle death. An exponentially higher number than shark deaths. Way higher. <laughs> there's there's soda machine stats yeah. too. You know how many people right. die by soda machines? That's a weird one. I'd heard that recently. Yeah. They tip over on people. Exactly. More than more than sharks, so you should be scared when you're getting a soda, much more than <laughs> Jaws. <laughs> So you mentioned the fear. Mm-hmm. Was that like a conscious thing? Like I'm afraid of sharks, so yeah. I'm going to move towards this. It was, you know, Jaws. It was a combination of Jaws growing up surfing in Northern California, where uh-huh. the waters are populated by great whites. I mean, they would attack a seal with surfers out, and everyone would go yeah. in and watch the shark and the blood in the water, and two hours later, you know, go back out and surf again. Yeah. So I just had that fear, and about 15, 16 years ago, I'm like, you know what? I want to I wanna see a great white. I want to photograph one. I want to go see it. Like, I want to face it. Like, I'm, mm. and started saying Because that. of the fear, or was that like the adventure impulse? It was sort of both, yeah. you know? I started diving at 10 years old in the Persian Gulf. I grew up in Saudi Arabia for four years, and it was like untouched reefs. Um, actually, the first sort of photograph, when I saw the power of photography, I took a picture of a picture of a shark with my waterproof mm-hmm. camera at like 11 and developed the film and then showed my buddies and told them I had taken it. And they right. were like, no way. And then I had to like say, oh, all right, it wasn't me. It was Nat Geo, but I saw their reaction. But the power of the image to inspire. Yeah. And so- Came early. You know, I started talking about my wife for my birthday, got me one of those cards, good for one shark trip, you know, which previously I'd never collected the, the race car or anything. And the next day I went down and signed up. Went down to Guadalupe, first one in the water, six in the morning, uh-huh. still dark out. Was that the the IWC campaign or no, was it, that no. was so prior to that? this was the that. first trip Just for by you. myself uh-huh. and I was the first one in the cage and that shirt came up five minutes in the water, comes up out of the darkness, swims by and where you are about that far from me and we locked eyes just like I'm doing with you and my life changed. I was like, oh. I see you, you see me, you're not this mindless killing machine. Like it just, from that moment. And on that trip, I was like hanging out of the cage by my waist and, you know, which Uh is like, God, I'd love to be out there, but I still, you know, had a fear. And at the same time I was shooting uh, Michael Phelps and all the uh, Olympians, I was doing the Speedo campaign, which Mm -hmm. I did for like nine years in a row. And a sort of combination of the two things, I was like, I want to, I want to light a shark like I do Iron Man. Like I want to edge light it and studio light it. Well, I can't bring the shark to the studio. I got to bring the studio to the shark. So I went online figuring there would be lights. They didn't exist. It was 400 watt and then big movie lights. So long story short, and then I could also do that with the swimmers and, Mm -hmm. you know, surfing and all types of stuff. They didn't exist. So I set out to invent them. I'm like, well, I'm gonna have to make them. And you know, that's where fear comes in, in that place too. Like, who are you to make a light? How are you? You're not going to be able to make, you know, all yeah. that chatter starts happening. But 
you know, one thing led to another, met one guy who, you know, met a guy actually got ripped off and I almost gave up. And then I met this guy who looked at me and was like, I can do it. And I believed that he believed he could. And I'm like, all right, well, I'll give you a little bit of the money. And then when you deliver, I'll pay you at all. And we got a guy from NASA, a guy from JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratories. And we actually made uh, the most powerful underwater strobe light. It's a pro photo, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and I received four or five patents on them. And IWC, the president was in town and I was putting their watches on celebrities. And so they came up to my house and I had showed them that one shark trip, the one trip that I had done. Mm -hmm. and I told them about these lights that I'm making. And he gave me their AquaTimer campaign on the spot, which was like nine months ahead. And all of his employees looked at him like, you're giving – this Hollywood portrait guy, our yeah. underwater campaign. And, you know, at the time I'm not David Dubelay or one of these right. award-winning underwater guys. And I'm like, I'm going to crush this. I'm going to have these lights and everything. Mind you, the lights didn't exist at that point. Uh -huh. The day before we left the Galapagos, the lights arrived. I jumped in my pool, fired them. They worked. And I went down to the Galapagos, very naive. I had done one short trip, didn't really know any of the statistics. And we were with UNESCO and the Charles Darwin Foundation. And that's where I got educated on what mm. was happening to our planet. And this is, you know, 15 years ago mm -hmm. that we were killing 100 million sharks. Half the Great Barrier Reef was gone at the time. Now it's 60%. So we've already lost 10% in the last 15 years. And all the other things. And right. Right. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, this is clearly your, you do lots of stuff, but this is, you know, your primary passion. And it seems you know, in contrast to the other work that you do, but when you understand your full story, like looking backwards, you know, vision is always twenty twenty. It mm -hmm. seems to make perfect sense, right? You're taking all of this studio cred and all the acumen that you've developed over the years, like working with celebrities and these movie campaigns and commercial campaigns, and then bringing that to the natural environment right. to like light these sharks underwater to create these images that are truly like iconic. I mean, I was just looking at your book right now. It's just stunning. Well, that's sort of on that trip. I went up to the roof of the boat one night and the stars were out. And I said to myself, I have three daughters. And I look, I said, I don't think my kids are going to be able to see some of this stuff. You know, the whale sharks I was seeing in the mm. schools, the hammerhead. Uh, and, you know, I still had that fear, right? So I went from one cage dive with great whites down with no cages and hundreds of hammerhead sharks and Galapagos sharks. Yeah. You know, like I sort of got thrown into it. But I said, you know, I don't think they're going to see this. So I made a decision. And that's I think anything in life, it starts with that decision. You know, I'm going to start biking or whatever it, it is. I'm going to, you know, create a, an app that's going to change the world, right? So I made this decision that I'm going to do everything I could to help sharks. That was the, of all the issues in the ocean, I'm going to help sharks and do everything I can to raise as much awareness, as much money uh, to help this animal that's been so misconstrued by movies and news. And... The idea for that book hit me that on that trip at that same time. I'm like, uh -huh. I'm going to do a book. And I saw the sharks coming out of light because I hadn't taken the lights yet and gone to do yeah. great whites or anything. And I'm like, if people see a shark in a way they've never seen them before, it's going to make them stop and look. And then I can educate them. And I'm like, I want to do a Tashin book. You know, yeah. this is 10 years before yeah. I got the Tashin yeah, deal. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, the idea that seed, uh, at least in my life, I see it. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to do a book and it's going to come in a cage and all this stuff. And it, it might take a decade, but uh -huh. as long as I'm walking towards that vision, it usually manifests. It's, right. it's amazing that, how like, powerful our, our minds are to, you know, bend reality and, uh -huh. and manifest, you know, what we want in our lives, which... 
in my in my opinion, or you know, for me, it was to help our planet and uh-huh. you know, help help this next generation. Yeah, and by picking a very specific thing to focus on, you can have more impact than just being like, "Hey, I'm an environmentalist at large," right? Like, yeah. what does that actually mean? Whereas this is very directed and is pointing people in a specific direction to really reframe how they think about like their relationship to this animal that we fear that is a you know the the apex predator of the planet yeah you know and it also takes an amazing wife and daughters that supported me cuz i did 36 expeditions you know mm-hmm. that are self funded so i'm spending my own money on these trips you know it's not cheap right. to charter boats and bring <laughs> film crews right. um, but you know and thank god for marvel because i was you know shooting mm-hmm. all these big movie yeah, campaigns yeah they the whole thing for you well they were paying me well and i would take that money instead of buying a bigger home or more cars and and go do shark trips uh-huh so when you have that first experience with that shark and your eye, your eye to eye, like you said, your life changed. Like, what was it about that? Like, what did you see there that shifted you? Like, what? Like, I want to know. I want to understand that better. Which you will that's shortly. The, that's the moment, right? You, you will shortly when yeah, I when jack I you into that <laughs> VR, right? Because it's the closest thing to being there without getting wet you'll ever do. That was the problem I had. Was how do I change people's perceptions? Because mm-hmm. that's what it is. It's a perception shift. With photos, it's extremely difficult because you look at that photo of the shark and you're like, yeah, that's cool and it's beautiful, but it doesn't really help shift the fear. Even uh-huh. you might hear my experience. It might make me more afraid. Might make you more afraid, right? TV, little bit better. You might have a little bit more of a chance changing people's perceptions, watching a box. But what I found happened, and it's the most powerful, was every year I've taken, not every year, but quite a few trips, I've taken out friends, a lot of them sort of influencer types, actors and athletes, to Guadalupe, put them on a boat, actually in different parts of the world, and brought them to see the sharks. My wife's a perfect example. Mm -hmm. So I brought her out uh, with Philippe and Ashlyn Cousteau and his organization. We went out to Guadalupe. And my wife, it's an 18-hour boat trip, cried almost the whole way. I'm going to die. I can't believe I'm doing this. I'm so irresponsible. You know, of course, it's going to be the wife of White Mike that dies, you know. Yeah. And I'm just like, okay, babe. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The second dive, I think it was, she was not out of the cage with her flippers on, but standing on top of the cage, holding the chain. I thought she was going to jump on the back of the shark and swim away. Uh That's how fast her perception shifted. And that goes for pretty much everyone that I'd bring out. They would go out sort of scared of sharks. What causes that shift? Like what is is transpiring that defies the, the preset in the mind? Well, I think one is you're not seeing what we've seen so many times in the movies, which is this, you know, shark that just wants to kill you, you know, and they're watching me and my team out of the cage interacting with these animals. And you can clearly see that these great whites really aren't, you know, trying to kill us. They're they're just incredibly smart. They're apex predators. You have to have a tremendous amount of respect because, you know, they will kill you if you're, if you, if you're scared or act like prey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I... I can't tell you what's happening. What What's happening only can give you is my experience is that I saw this animal in a different light than I did, you know, watching the movies. And I was like, oh, it's not what I was projected. Yeah, you had mentioned in something that I read that that you can clearly see a difference in personalities across, like every shark has its own personality yeah. and you start to individuate and notice that. Yep. And and genders, you know, the females versus the males, you know, females are always a lot bigger. Um, they're more chill. They're more, you know, in, 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 
inquisitive, whereas the boys are aggressive and just sort of like uh -huh. swimming around fast and, and just sort of like people. But they all are a little different, and you you really assess the animals when when they come up. And you know, here's here's all other sharks. Here's tiger sharks and hammerhead. Like you know, the tiger sharks, we have to like bait them to come in because they don't want anything really usually to do with us. You know, in Hawaii, different parts they will. They'll come right up, but. For the most part, sharks swim the other way when they see people. Uh -huh. You know, we're chumming the water and putting fish out so they'll come in. So that's pretty much every other shark. And then there's great whites, right? So great whites are ambush predators. So when you swim with great whites outside of the protection of a cage, it's not the shark that you see because they'll be out of the cage and there'll be a 20, 15-foot, whatever, 17-foot where the wall is, that far, like right there. And I look over, as long as we have eye contact – I'm not even thinking about – I mean, I am, but I'm not. Mm. My head's like this on a swivel looking around because eventually I'm going to usually look down and I'm going to see that tail going right. two and a half tons going about 20 miles an hour coming up at me like a missile. So they're coming, shh, which I then have to turn and swim head on at the shark coming at me at 20 miles an hour. And the minute I start swimming towards it, it really it looks at me and says – I don't like you. You're a potential predator and banks off. Wow. Now but that takes some serious balls. So <laughs> now how do you learn If it's that? charging you, you got to charge at it. Yeah. So this is, you know, and that's the thing. There isn't like learn to swim with great white school, you know, and uh -huh. this isn't, um, this is, you know, years and hundreds and thousands of hours underwater with all different types of other sharks. And my mentor, this, this man, Mornay Hardenberg, who's in South Africa, he's the one that, taught me the skills of swimming with white sharks out of the cage. And how I learned that was about six years ago, I was out of the cage and my flippers were down. I was like this with my camera and I see a shark coming at me like full speed. And I grabbed my camera and I remember in my head going like, all right, rubber meets the road. Here we go. Like I'm ready. Mm. Holding my camera. I'm looking down and off this shoulder, Mornay goes head on at it, holding his red camera with the two arms and the lights and goes straight on at it. And I watched the shark bank off. And the first thought was, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. Second thought was, he just saved my life. Mm -hmm. Third thought was, looks like that's what you do. And when we got up to the surface, he said, okay, listen, when they come at you, you have to turn and swim head on at them. Right, which goes against everything yeah. in your, you know, especially after spending five, six years with them from the cage watching those teeth and how fat. I'm like, okay. The next day we were out of the cage and we had two of them come at us, one at him, one at me. I had no choice. So I did right. it. I'm like, all right, here we go. If you freeze your prey. If you freeze, you're done. So here's what happens. So everything in the ocean besides orcas swim away from that animal. So everything like freaks out. Everything. So the minute you start swimming towards it, that's not something they're yeah, used they're to like, seeing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't, yeah, right, right. And the right, other thing right. is nothing touches that animal. Uh -huh. So if you go up and even give it a little pinch, it's just gone. Wow. Gone. What about the, you, you always hear you sh you're supposed to punch them in the nose. Is that, yeah. a, is that a myth? Yeah, urban myth. Yeah. Well, here's what happens if you punch them in the nose. Punch. Your hands that go mouth. Off. No, that mouth opens up, which is really wide. So... One of the things I do is before I have a, a an expedition where I know I'm going to be, you know, at, outside the cage with white sharks for the weeks leading up, in my mind, sort of like baseball players visualize, I visualize that shark not turning and what I'm going to do and how I'm going to twist my body and hit my, you know, use my camera to mm. bump the side of his gills mm -hmm. on the sides, which I've only had to do one time and 
and all of the the diving and all the times I've spent with great white sharks. One time a shark came by and he looked like he was going this way. And at the last minute, his head went like that. My daughter, my 10-year-old was in the cage watching behind me. So I was not taking any chances. And I just gave it a little tap right when its head moved and uh, swam off. But never been bit? I mean, is that never the closest been bit, Never even been really close to being bit. Right. Wow. But you do have to be, you know, with the chum in the water, you have to be really aware of your of your surroundings because, you know, a piece of fish can float by your arm, uh-huh. you know, and the shark's going for that fish and, you know, catches right. your arm. Um, and, you know, for years people would ask me, like, why do you do this? Are you an adrenaline junkie was usually the common tag that would go with why I was doing this. And I couldn't really, I couldn't quantify, I couldn't answer them why I was doing it. And I'd be like, no, no, it's not an adrenaline junkie thing. And then a couple years ago, I don't know, four or five years ago, I was underwater, I was with the sharks and it hit me. I mean, it hit me like a bolt of lightning. I'm like, oh my God, this is why I do this. Because it was really the only time in my life that I felt like I was really in the moment, like in the moment, truly. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing else is going on. And I was like, oh, my God. And the hairs on my arms stood up in my wetsuit. And I was like, wait, I don't want to have to swim with sharks to have this this experience. I want this on land, too, which led me down a path of mindfulness and meditation and Uh seeking that that experience out, which I – it's a practice that I try to do daily of, as much as I can of being right here, right now, in the moment, and not up here, in the future, in fear. Because yeah. I, once I started this project, I thought I was sort of a fearless guy, and I really had no idea how much fear, you know, ran my life. Mm. But smaller things like you know jobs and work and little things, and then how much I would react on it, just robotically, mm-hmm. send an email, do this, try to do stuff. Try to make the the headset work, force yeah. it, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead of just being like, it's all cool. And it's finding finding presence in the most treacherous environment. Like we think of mindfulness in the context of, you know, a calm, quiet environment. Yeah. But it's fear that brings us into the moment yeah. more than anything, right? I mean, I gotta say for me, the more chaos and like when I'm on my shoots and there's a hundred people and people are, what do you want? And the que- that's the most calm. And you're like a Jedi. And yeah, yeah. I'm like, ooh, when I'm at home and my daughter starts having some emotional meltdown or whatever, that's when I'm just like, ah, what do I do? <laughs> wow, that's crazy. How right. old was your daughter when she first swam with sharks? So I have I have three girls. I have a 16-year-old and twin 13-year-olds. Uh-huh. Uh, Clara, the eldest, she started doing great white trips with me at nine and a half. I got them certified at like nine and a half, ten, mm. sort of fudge their birthdays. And she's done four great white expeditions wow. with me. And she literally asked me last year, she's like, I want to go out of the cage. And I was like, mm. I bet you do. We'll, we'll, we'll talk in 10 years after you put in all the time with uh-huh. all the other sharks. You have to earn that. Even though there's a part of me that yeah. so badly wants That's to take pretty it out cool. of the cage. I mean, I've, my yeah. daughters are the same age. I got two daughters, 16 and 13, and I'm trying to visualize them doing something like that. I'm trying to visualize myself doing something like yeah. that. Like that's, it's just, that's super cool. Yeah. I mean, I grew up, my father, you know, we, I lived, like I said earlier, I lived in Saudi Arabia for four years and traveled to 60 countries before I started high right. school. And, um, and it was one of the best. So when you're there, when you live in Saudi Arabia, they pay you three times your salary, free homes uh-huh. and all that. Most people just bank a bunch of money. And my dad was like, uh-uh, like this is a once in a lifetime. We're going to travel and see the world. And every three months, we had a big wall map. We're like, oh, let's go to India. Let's try Sri Lanka. Right. 
And so you had gone yeah, to like gotta, 50 countries by the time you were in high school. Yeah. Right? And I think that's, you know, it planted that seed as a photographer. I travel a lot, you know, now since been to close to 200 countries, but mm-hmm. it's something I try to do with my, my family a lot mm-hmm. and show them the world, sort of open their eyes to how good we have it here. So there's a lot of countries yeah. that, you know, people I think really take it for granted in America, like how, how blessed we are. I mean, we have our <laughs> fair share of issues and uh, in recent Days and yeah. months and years, they're they're growing by the day. Mm-hmm. But uh, we have an amazing country here, and, and it's just cool to see the world and all the different cultures out there. How old were you when you moved to Saudi Arabia? Third grade. Third grade. Yeah. What what city did you move to? My dad built was building a city called Jubail. It was mm. at the time the world's largest construction project. He worked for a company called Bechtel, uh-huh. a big construction. You know, one of the it's like Bechtel, Aramco, and Floor. Uh-huh. And he was the project manager. It was like you know building a massive, massive wow. city. So I've traveled throughout Saudi Arabia. Um, been to a bunch of cities there and spent some time in Bahrain. Yeah. And what right. I didn't realize that I learned when I was there was that at one time Bahrain had some of the most amazing coral reefs anywhere and the oil trade has just devastated that's, it. That's where I grew up. So Bahrain okay. was right off Jubail. Yeah. We would take Dow boats, you know, the Dow, the wooden boats. Uh-huh. So we'd take Dow boats out to Bahrain. Right. Before the bridge was built or was the bridge? Oh, there? yeah. Before this yeah. is this is Way like back. late 70s, yeah. early 80s, right? Before Saddam let all the oil into the Persian Gulf, mm-hmm. before this oil trade. And to this day... I can see those reefs. They're the, they were the most untouched, gorgeous reefs I've ever seen to this day. Yeah, that's what I've heard. And they're gone. They're gone. And I remember when- The um, tanker, they had to, didn't they have to troll it so that it was deep enough for the tankers? I don't know exactly what- I mean, I don't it. know all, there's probably a bunch of different reasons uh-huh. why it's gone. I just remember Desert Storm and the war, what affected me the most. I remember CNN showing the beach with the waves crashing, the oil waves. And I right. just saw those reefs wiped out and I just was, it crushed me. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my God, those reefs are all gone. That's where you learned to scuba dive though. Yeah, that's where mm-hmm. I learned to scuba dive and, you know, grew up watching Cousteau and, and that sort of also planted. The, right. So, the, know, so dad had the adventure gene. Yeah. And photography inherited. was his oh, hobby. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So he had uh, all the Nicromats and Nikons oh, in the wow. class and gave me my first F4 and I moved back to the United States uh, in seventh grade and started shooting snowboarding. It was just starting, mm-hmm. like literally it was the inception of the smort and started shooting snowboarding when I was like 15 and getting published. And me and my best friend at the time who was from Europe, so his parents sort of thought, gave him his college tuition. And we started the first snowboarding calendar, uh-huh. which the first year we lost our shirt, second year broke even, then started actually making- When you were in high school? Yeah. So, so you traveled were, were you to Europe. Like, where were you, but you were living in- Up in what, Lafayette. Lafayette yeah, yeah, right? Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. So like traveled to Europe at 16, just the two of us yeah. shooting pro snowboarders and we'd drive to Colorado. So growing up overseas, cause we would get to like Hong Kong and I'm 12 years old and I would leave for two hours and come back and tell my parents like, mm-hmm. okay, the market's over here and this is there. Right. It's just a different Nobody time. do that now. Yeah. <laughs> well, heck wow. No. That's crazy. Yeah. And then at some point you become this like unbelievable triathlete. Like, yeah, yeah. This part of the story is, gets lost, but like, this is crazy. Yeah. You were like a so, champion triathlete, yeah, it was, biathlete. It was at the same time. So in high school, um, you know, I 
like seventh grade was the worst year of my life. Like I mean, coming back from Saudi Arabia, all the other kids knew each other. I knew no one. I had to like socially claw my way up, you know, the ladder. And sports-wise, I started water polo. But a year be- behind all the other mm-hmm. guys, I was as good as, that, as the other guys but wasn't getting played. And I was at swim team and this guy started telling me he was doing triathlon, swim bike and run. And I was like, oh, I want to try that. And I went home and told my parents, like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, I'm dead serious. And they got me a bike and I started riding and we live in the Berkeley Hills. So it was uh-huh. like a lot of hills. Good riding. And I would ride 50 miles a day and I was doing water polo and swimming. And I went and did my first triathlon, which was a half Ironman, the Wildflower, which is uh, a yeah, Bakersfield. That race. It's a, that's a hard course. Freaking gnarly. I didn't know any better, though. Mm-hmm. So my first race is a half Ironman. And I get in 500 people, start the, or 700 people start the swim. And I can I remember this day, this guy grabbing my shoulder to pull me back. And uh-huh. I'm coming out of water pool, and I look right. back and just kicked him in the face. <laughs> so I come out of the I come uh-huh. out of the swim in fifth place. Overall, pros and everything. Right. My dad was like, what the F is going on? Like, no, there must be some problem, you know, some my son's in fifth. Go out on the bike, come back from the bike in ninth place. Uh-huh. So literally, and this is out of everyone. And right. then went Super out on the run course. and hot. Yeah. Go out on the run, walk half of the the you know thirteen mile run, and finish ninety ninth overall and first in my age group, and I was hooked. That was uh-huh, it. That and was it. I started doing them, you know, fifteen to twenty of them every summer, which was the season. I had nineteen twenty sponsors, you know, Revo sunglasses, Domino's pizza, Side Out Sport, and you know, placed fifth in the world at the World Championships. Probably would have done a lot better, but I was heartbroken. Wow. At imagine, Olympic yeah. distance. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. Olympic distance and racing against Lance Armstrong a right. bunch because that's when he started doing triathlons mm-hmm. before bike racing. And yeah, so I would do triathlons in the summer and do photography. And then did you, when did you, you moved to San Diego for a spell, right? Was so that to right when I got into that yeah, community like there? Senior year in high school, I would get out of school at 11 because of my triathlon to go train. So, uh, you know, when I graduated high school, the day after I graduated, like, you know, June Uh 15th, I packed my car up and moved to San Diego because the two meccas of triathlon at the time were Boulder and San Diego. And went down there and had a triathlon team at the time. It was I've always been a bit of an entrepreneur and, you know, like I, all the sponsors I got myself, I right. would go right, you know. And then I was also shooting snowboarding and rock and roll. So the other thing I did in high school was I would write the labels and say that I was shooting for the local paper, the Contra Costa Times or the Contra uh-huh. Costa Sun to get the press <laughs> pass. The pass, right. So I just go into rolling. You name the so concert, you're like backstage at Shoreline, backstage. And all those so I'm shooting rock and roll, and I'm shooting snowboarding, and then I'm doing my triathlons, and I go to San Diego, and you know I move down to the beach, and it's just party central, right. and I'm looking around at these guys that are like 21. I, you know, I'm 17, 18, and I'm like, if I don't get out of here, I'm gonna end up a loser like uh-huh. these guys. And I'm like, what do I want to do? Swim, bike, and run for 10 more years, and then what? Yeah, there's not a lot of there's not a lot of a bandwidth for rock and roll when you're living the triathlon lifestyle no, well, and you want to compete lot, at that level. No, it was opposite. There wasn't a lot of bandwidth for triathlon because I was planning my life. I'm like, what am I going to swim, bike, and run for 10 years and then what? Mm. So what do I want to do? I didn't do well in school. Like I wasn't like going to Stanford or anything. So I'm like, photography, that's what I do. So I, I packed up, went with my buddy from high school who we did the calendar, moved to Boulder, Colorado uh-huh. for a season. And I was just heartbroken from my high school sweetheart ripping my heart out and doing what they do at that first that first love, you know. And then um, 
was in Boulder. He got a girlfriend, was doing his thing. And my best, one of my other best friends was, was in LA. He was a musician. He said, come to LA, come to LA. I packed up, moved here. I was uh -huh. 18. And the rest is sort of wow. history. Started shooting, you know, model friends and actor friends yeah. and, and that sort of. So you fell in pretty quickly into like the 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 Leo and Balthazar crowd, right? Balthazar. When they so were prowling. He like was the was, first first <laughs> non-snowboard. He was the first uh -huh. actor I shot. So I got here. Scott was really good friends with Balt and Davey. So I yeah. shot Balthazar and David Arquette. Mm -hmm. And then just. Friends, like we all went to the Formosa, all the under, it was the only right. bar that was served the underage. But yeah, it was like Leo and Drew and, you know, and at that time, this is before the internet and right. with film, you know, we just say, let's go take pictures, go shoot pictures, uh -huh. no publicists. Publicists only came about when the internet came about. Mm -hmm. um, and then bands, because I knew all those labels, right, from shooting the things. So when I got to LA, they were like, oh yeah, come on in. So I went and then I started shooting Spin and I remember Spin called me to shoot some band called Green Day. And I'm like, Green Day? What is Green Day? And I went up to Berkeley and we became like, you know, I shot all their stuff, shot uh -huh. their wedding, shot Billy Joe's wedding. And I was the punk photographer when punk sort of blew and rancid and all those boys. That's crazy. It yeah. seems like it happened really seamlessly and quickly. Yeah, I mean, it it did. It's like uh, you you have to have the talent. I think I you know I, I never went to school, so I didn't learn the rules. You know, mm -hmm. um, I also because I was like, how am I going to learn to shoot people? Right, I was shooting and snowboarding, and I found out about testing models. Right. Because I was like, I don't ever want to assist. I don't want to watch you doing something I want to do to learn how to take – no, I can do this. So I figured that models need portfolios, right, uh, to go and get jobs. So I started testing models uh -huh. and I did a few for free and then I started charging 50 a roll, you know, and then 100 a roll and 150. But every one of those shoots I treated like it was the cover of Vogue or the cover – and I would be like, okay, I got to do six different looks within a three block radius and I would dress them. And and then I was shooting my actor friends, uh -huh. which were, you know, it was like Leo before Titanic and right. Drew. And then- But you're on the inside, you have their trust. So you could, you could, no, you I could didn't go have to their the house trust. parties and all I that kind earned, of stuff. I yeah. earned their trust because I would get, I would have photos that I could have made a lot of money with the National right. Enquirer. But I didn't because mm -hmm. you do that once, you might get a good payday, but you're never going to, you know, people aren't going to trust you. So I was their friend. So I would, you know, shoot stuff and shoot at parties and do stuff. But I would, you know, I would obviously have that compass of knowing. Right. There's a boundary there. Well, yeah. there is. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah. And then I got agents and started shooting, you know, the rest. Uh -huh. so sort of. And never like technically trained, never apprenticed. No, I went to Otis Parsons for one semester. They uh -huh. gave me advanced placement because of my snowboarding work as a junior or whatever. Right. And I was like, what do I need a diploma for? Do I need to show this to jobs? And they're like, no, if, just if you want to be a teacher. Uh-huh. And I'm like, okay. And I got paid to learn by these models, you know, because I was trying new films and, mm. and doing different things like that. And how does the studio work start to happen? I mean, didn't that begin with you uh, starting to photograph like the superheroes outside of the, the Chinese theater? Studio work started happening in the second lifetime of my career. <laughs> so right. I'm in my 20s. I'm shooting Young Hollywood. I'm shooting all the rock and roll. This is early 90s, Nirvana, uh, and, you know, young kids in Hollywood with money and success. And, uh, you know, I 
like everyone I knew at the time started doing drugs, had a big ego that like, cause I was triathlon mental. Like I would, mm. you know, oh, nothing's gonna, I'm never gonna have a problem. And, uh, and you know, formed a drug habit that you yeah. know, got me by the back. And what I was, was like, the, uh, what was the drug like, choice? LA is the problem. I'm going to move to New York. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the geographic that was great the geographic uh-huh. yeah you know this is the problem i'm not realizing that i'm taking the problem everywhere i go because michael's the problem uh-huh. um that, that took years to learn that yeah That's so that amazing. played itself out over a while a uh-huh. long long ex- how many years yeah it was there? like you know four or five years i was smart enough to go like okay i've got a drug problem here if i don't put my camera down i'm gonna burn every bridge and i made a conscious decision to like be like okay if i'm gonna be a drug addict, i'm gonna be a professional drug addict mm-hmm. and that's that sort tri- of happened they're, they're in same, New York. same triathlon mindset exactly all in exactly but in the back of my head i sort of knew i just knew i was gonna find my way to the other side you know my dad was got cancer diagnosed with cancer um, so he started to, you know, die from cancer. That was sort of the end of my using. And when he, you know, passed away, I moved back to Northern California, um, you know, got arrested one last time and, uh, he passed away and I got out and, and that was sort of it. I, you know, started going to 12 step programs. Yeah. So that was the, the bottoming out was just your dad passing. Was that the moment or? Um, yeah, that, that was a really pivotal moment. I think I had so much shame and guilt at what I had let happen to me that, you know, I, I felt and like, I don't know if I would have ever gotten sober if he hadn't passed mm. um, because it, it was so bearing on me. You know, I had this great career and this life that I'd built and I'd, you know, sort of flushed it all down the toilet. And, you know, when I remember I got sort of got my, started this second, got sober, whatever, the new part of my life in Sacramento. And I remember going there, I'm like, I, I'm, I'm staying here six months and I'm mm. moving back to LA. Like, this is the armpit of California. Don't mm. you know who I am? And I've shot Leo and Drew. And, right. And I ended up staying, I remember two years, because when six months came, I was like, I'm not ready to go back to LA. But I, I milked Sacramento for all it was worth. I mean, did you go the there band. for treatment or why'd you go to Sacramento? Yeah, I mean, sort of. I went there I went there under the tutelage of like a spiritual advisor and then got uh, introduced to 12-step stuff. So got into all that and then started shooting and started shooting all the local bands and um, was and then started slowly making trips down to LA and went into Bond Dutch because I was shooting all these bands and I loved their clothes. The owner saw my portfolio, uh-huh. took me to lunch. Tony. Huh? Tony? Tony? T- no, Tony. Mike isn't Cassell. Tony. Oh, who is I, there's so, a guy named Tony. There was I a guy named Mike Cassell and, and then this uh, Taekwondo Swedish guy named Tony, who were the two owners of Von Dutch. Uh-huh. That's the guy. There's a lot of politics. And then Tony kicked Mike out and brought in Christian Aguilera or whatever mm-hmm. and the Tom Hardy, yeah, all that yeah, yeah, good yeah, stuff. But that. Uh, the Von Dutch campaign came out. I mean, like Paris Hilton came in for it. But that campaign launched and sort of put me back on the map and the ad agency started calling and I started doing these like big course campaigns with giving me the money to come back. So I moved back to L.A. and I remember I was like, you know, two years into this new life of mine. And uh, when I was up in Sacramento, I was, you know, dating a just dating a lot of girls. Mm-hmm. But being really honest, this is I'd be like, listen, I'm not emotionally available. I'll take you out on dates. We'll have fun, but that's all I can give you. And they're uh-huh. like, yeah, yeah, cool. And then like six weeks or a couple of- Chaos uh, ensues. They'd be like, I can't do this anymore. I'm starting <laughs> to have feelings for you, but you told me. Yeah. But I'll tell you, 
my guy, the one thing my spiritual advisor gave me, which saved my life in, in a lot of regards, was he looked at me and says, do you know what you're looking for in a wife? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. He's like, what? And I gave him the generic, you know, I don't know, funny. And he's uh -huh. like, no, no, no. You're going to go home tonight. You're going to write down the 10 core principal things you want in a wife. And I was like, okay. And I did. And I was like, you know, uh, good relationship with dad, no kids. I want to create a family, not marry into one, you know, has her own life, spiritual, I made all these things. And I shortly thereafter met this girl who was like a hairstylist and a born again. And I was like, oh, she might be the one. She had two kids mm. on my list. I'm like, you're not the one. So I moved back to LA two months into moving back. I met my wife to this, you know, mm. who's my wife now. And it was like, check, 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 check. And that was Baltazar it. and his wife Rosetta were actually the, oh, wow. the ones who I wow. met. But uh, that list, because I look back in retrospect, you can't ever, like you just said earlier. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, if I hadn't made that list and went with that, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you right now. Who's that spiritual advisor? <laughs> just uh, You're being cryptic about yeah. that, but like I no want to know about would, that guy. No one knowing you would know. <laughs> I've, had a, I've had many yeah. of those over the years, man. Uh -huh. I'll tell you, those are the... Those mentors that have, you know, there's there's mm. been a, a, a dozen, you know, there's been a bunch that yeah. have given me those. Uh, and, you know, it's just a matter of being open and seeking, you know. It's like the the Kabbalists say, the the darker the darker you are, the more opportunity mm. to, of light to reveal, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. I went really dark, which means on this new path, I'm yeah. seeking the light like yeah. no other. Yeah, but the darkness is the teacher. You know yeah. what I mean? When I think of... A photographer of your caliber, I think of a particular kind of lifestyle, lots of women, lots of parties, and you did all that, you had your moment with that. And now you have this kind of spiritual path where you're into all this holistic stuff and the environmentalism. And I know you're part of like the Laird and Gabby morning workout with mm -hmm. the Wim Hof breathing and the ice baths and like all the stuff that you do to, mm -hmm. you know, be this, you know, be the most authentic, best version of who you are. So you can express yourself and share your your gift and raise your family and, you know, be the man that, you know, you're meant to be. Yeah, you know, one of the one of the sort of aha moments was the realizing the PTSD that I had that I didn't know. I used to Yeah, let's to, talk about that. I mean, I you know, I've I've read that you've had that and that you deal with that, but what is the origin of that? Well, I thought you had to go to Vietnam to have PTSD. You know, I was naive, like I, PTSD. I don't have PTSD. Mm -hmm. I remember when I first, the first time I started doing, you know, a therapeutic work with my, you know, with the counselor, <laughs> I was looking at my trauma egg and I'm like, yeah, it's not that bad. He looked at me and it's like, Michael, <laughs> I work with like soldiers that come right off Afghanistan and you've seen more shit than 95% mm -hmm. of them. Like, don't think for a second that you don't have some serious issues. So, you know, when you have PTSD, there's big P and small P, um, which I've learned a lot from Andrew Huberman and right. different people about fear and just different things. But um, uh, when you when you see anything that's perceived death, death or near death experiences, it imprints you, right? And I have a different emotional reaction than say a normal person or a person that doesn't. So like when my wife yells, it like I, I feel like I'm dying. Like it's uh -huh. crazy, this emotional reaction. And if you don't, deal with those emotions, it's like a pressure cooker, stuff, 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 explode, right? Or medicate, right? You know, which I think if you look at the, the core reason why people abuse drugs, they're medicating pain. Uh, I would say probably 95% of them. Yeah. That's why they're taking drugs. They want to medicate, they want to numb that pain. 
Now, that's one way of, of going through this life. You can numb the pain, right? And then you're numbing all the joy. You're numbing all the happiness. You're numbing everything. Uh, or you can realize those wounds, right? Bandage, patch, let them heal. Look at them as scars. Like I have a scar on my face that I see every time I look in the mirror. It's there. But do I still feel that fence ripping open? Mm -mm. Mm. doesn't affect me. Uh, but that takes work. That takes looking at those wounds. Uh, where the origins, I had a lot of childhood trauma, um, you know, from emotional, physical abuse, uh, you know, uh, and then uh, those dark years that I was, you know, abusing the drugs, I saw and did a lot of things that were just dark, just... Yeah. One of the things you do uh, in the trauma therapy I did is, is a trauma egg and you start from your first, you know, your first memory of any near death or, you know, and had a big piece of paper about half the size of this table and started with a circle down here. circles, And I literally almost filled the egg up with mm. these, you know, near or death that I'd seen people being killed, whatever it might be. And, you know, I still looked at that, like I was saying, and was like, eh, it's not that bad. You know, I didn't, right. it's not that bad. You didn't drive your Humvee over and, you know, an IED. Yeah. It's more like death by a thousand cuts, right? Like these just exactly. inc these incidences that would recur in your life that accumulate over time to create this situation. And everyone, everyone has them. You, yeah. you life, you have these experiences in life, right? That are traumatic and that are- Who you helped know, you pain. realize this? Were you working with a therapist or Yeah, I think, like I said, all those different, you know, different spiritual uh, people or mentors over the years that have guided me. Uh, how did I find out about trauma? Uh, I, I had a guy that I was working with in a 12-step program come over to my house, looked at me and he was like, listen, Michael, I don't think I can help you. And this guy had worked with like Mike Tyson and different people. Uh, and he said, you have something that's beyond, which took a lot for mm -hmm. him because the ego said, oh, I can help. You know, and he had the humility to look at me and said, I can't help you. I think you have something that's beyond my skill set. Was, like, was it Howard? Well, this person, I'm going to remain yeah, nameless, okay. but he said, um, I want you to call this guy. So I cold called this guy, West, um, and he was a guy who was 25 years sober with a gun in his mouth. He also had, mm. you know, PTSD that he didn't know about. Uh, and he told me this story and he's like, Michael changed my life. And then he gave me the number of my first trauma therapist named Ryan Suave, who I called Ryan. And uh, he actually flew out here and we spent four days together out in Malibu, 24 hours a day doing therapeutic work wow. and it was one of the gnarliest experiences of my life like it was extremely tough you know for breath work meditate like hour and a half long sessions a day like it was it was hardcore mm. um and that was my first and you know now i, I do some emdr work which is uh -huh. another form of trauma therapy where you're looking at a yeah a thing your eyes going back and forth right and it's it's been really cool because I, I talk about it and there's been, a, you know, a number of people that have come up to me and said, I can't thank you enough. I didn't know anything about it. And I actually had it and I've addressed it and I can't tell you my life is, you know, and that's that's what it's all about. Yeah. Man, when you can yeah. really sort of uh, pass on what was sort of so freely given to me. And so how how is it for you now? Does it still show up? Like, is it something that you just unconsciously have, you know, are, you know, sort of resort to these tools to manage it or is it quelled and kind of in your past? Daily practice. Yeah. No, man, you, <laughs> I'm stuck with Michael till, right. till, I, till I'm yeah. off so to the So when the wife one. yells, the bells still go off. They, they do. And, you know, I, something I'm working on like literally today is not reacting. 
not taking it personal, not like realizing it's her thing. It's mm. not mine. It's it's just me. I want to take it. Oh my God. And when I do that, when I don't react, um, it's freaking amazing yeah. what happens. Cause I don't know about your wife, but wife's like to pull the pen and throw a grenade, right? <laughs> An emotional grenade that just blows up. You're like, where did that come from? Why are you blowing me up? Uh-huh. And when I react, it just, it lasts all night. Right. Mm. And when I don't, it's crazy because she'll throw the grenade or she'll say the things. And then two minutes later, she's like, hey, love, come over here. And I'm just mm. like, what? You're <laughs> uninstalling you the buttons. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's powerful. You know, and, and, you know, one of the things is being a parent is this, you feel this need to protect your kids from any of those traumatic experiences. It's like, oh, I don't want them to feel that. I, I don't want them, you know, or at least sometimes my wife will do it. And I'm more like, they need to go through yeah. these things. The only way to learn is for their friends to diss them and not invite mm-hmm. them to that party. So they realize what it feels like when they don't invite people to things. Yeah, it's a conundrum because the most interesting people that I know have had those dark moments of the soul and have figured out for themselves how to you know, repair their lives. And they come out of it and become these incredibly interesting, amazing, productive people. And then you, know, you, you sort of have some success and you're able to provide for your kids in a certain way that maybe you weren't able to, to have. And by doing that, you're depriving them of certain life experiences that can be formative in the most positive way. Yeah, and then you you also, I, I know I have to own the things that I've passed on that I go, oh my God. Cause you, I think in my head, I had that illusion, like I'm never gonna do the things my parents did. I'm gonna yeah. be this great dad. And then, you know, in retrospect, I'm like, fuck, I I wasn't perfect, mm. uh, you know, and- Yeah, my, my daughters let me know yeah, every day. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but what the beautiful thing is I do have today, you know, I have mm. this moment to either undo or do things differently. Um, um, and, uh, you know, try to fix. I, I have, you know, pretty good, amazing relationships with my daughters. I, I hear from other fathers that get the hand or whatever, uh-huh. get the door slammed, which would suck. I, I don't, but I've, you know, that was a choice. I remember uh, when Clara was six months old, a couple studio heads, different people told me they were like, they had missed, they were working all the time. They missed mm-hmm. their kids growing up and they were getting remarried and they had their new baby and they're like, Michael, don't do it. And I've made a, a conscious decision. I did a f- job when Claire was six months, a Nike gig in Greece, whatever, and missed the vacation or left for part of it. My wife's like, eh, it sort of sucked. From that moment on, I've made a decision that when I'm on vacation, or, like no matter what comes up, I'm with my kids. I'm with my, and probably pass on some of the biggest jobs of my life doing that. Right. Um, also going to all my kids' games when I'm in town. But what I have today is a relationship with my daughter. I don't get the hand. I don't get the door slammed. I mean, are they perfect? <laughs> By no means. That's beautiful, man. We should, uh, we yeah, should jack you into some VR. Yeah, let's do the VR. We'll take a quick break and right. report back. We're back. I just had the VR experience. That was insane. Cool. That's my first legitimate VR experience period. But then to have it be your work and and just to have that experience of being underwater, immersed, surrounded by these creatures. I mean, that it was magical, man. Yeah. It's crazy. Is that publicly available? Like, what is the? It's, it's going to be, you know, uh, it's it was a year and a half crisscrossing the planet, uh-huh. capturing all that, you know, that bait ball, the mm. sardine run is mm-hmm. like the holy grail 
of, of and where footage. was that? Where uh, was that? For? Port St. John, like the armpit of Africa. Uh-huh. Like, uh, Port St. John's, it's, um, it's one of these, you know, you see it on uh, like Blue Planet and stuff. Right. It is so hard to actually get on one because it's 20 miles of, of ocean, right? And, you know, you'll see the birds funneling down, but if the if the bait ball is moving, right, you can't mm. do it. So you need the bait ball to stay static. Mm-hmm. You need the dolphins. You need the shirt. You need everything to come yeah. together. So it's taken me three years, multiple trips, right, 12 hours at sea in a Zodiac all day long looking for it, right, because you'll see and then you'll race over. We have a spotter plane. But the plane's like seeing it happen, and uh-huh. it takes you a half an hour to get there in the right, little zodiac. Anyways, it, um, and with this new technology, so the only way to shoot VR was with GoPros, underwater mm-hmm. VR, right? Which is GoPros, and I'm like, I am not making the blue planet of VR right. GoPros. So I had these. Uh, this I met this company Virtue, who had figured out how to do stereoscopic, but this is like the first iteration of it. Mm. 120 pounds. The camera was this big with 14 black magic cameras. Whoa. And it was sort of a science experiment, right? So uh-huh. if one camera went down, you lost the whole, you lost right, it all. Right, because then you don't have the stereo. Which happened yeah. on a number of dives, right? So on the sardine run, I was just so many, so stressed. I'm like, that can't happen. Like, mm. I don't get a second chance with this. Yeah. And I just remember we were we were in the boat and I saw some birds starting to drop. And it wasn't like a big amount. Mm. It wasn't like the one where you're like, that's the one. And Mornay was like, eh, I don't really. I'm like, well, I'm going. Like, yeah. I don't care. I'm gonna. He's like, okay, too. I'm gonna. And we came up and came up on it, which the Brewster whale hit. We had a 36 minute bait ball, like just the two of us. One of the best dives of mm. my life. The Brewster whale came like three feet from me and hit the bait ball. We hadn't seen Brewster whales in eight years. It was like the cherry on top. And I remember putting the camera up. I'm like, please tell me. Please tell me yeah. that they're all running. And they were like, they're all working. I'm like, ah, oh, because to this day, it would I would have it would bug me to show you that and be like, oh, I wish you had seen that. Uh-huh. And you're a pilot too? No, no. Who's flying that little oh seaplane? Oh, my God, the, the microlite. Like, I was more scared to get in that. I'm t- that not thing kidding looked, you. That than thing looked any pretty shark thing. janky. I mean, dude, blood. it's like an iPhone for your <laughs> GPS. I sent my producer up in it. I sent like four people up before I went up in the thing. And then, of course, I told the pilot, I'm like, dude, don't try to impress me. Like, I, you don't need to fly two feet off the water and right. do any. I don't need that. It's like a go kart. Of course, he did it because if you go down there, there's no Coast Guard in this part right. of Africa. Like, you're done. Like, right. you, and it is the most shark infested. Like, he's up there and he sees great whites on the surface. Like, there's sharks all over the place wow. there. Um, so, I spent a year and a half doing that. And then. Uh, uh, you know, VR is such, I'm like a couple years ahead of like, it's just, it's in its infancy. Yeah, of and, course. Know, and we just didn't know what, we knew we were sitting, I'm sitting on this mountain of footage and this mountain of IP, but you know, the the outlets for it are just sort of mm-hmm. discovering themselves. Yeah, until so, everybody has an Oculus, like yeah. how are you supposed to well, enjoy it? I mean, you can watch it on your phone and move your phone around, but that's not the experience that you No, but that is have. a cool experience. So yeah. that's one of the things that um, most of the VR haven't done. So we're putting it out on mobile so everyone will be able to watch mm-hmm. it on your phone, which mm-hmm. is cool because not everyone has a headset. Yeah. But since COVID started, you can't buy headsets. They're sold out everywhere. Oh, really? I didn't yeah. know Yeah, and everyone's, I think, just sort of sick of Netflix and all the shows mm-hmm. that they've seen. So they're grabbing their headset. Well, let me see what's on here. So we have, it's done. We're talking with, and I don't know if I'm, we're in the talks with a, a huge brand to sponsor the series. Uh-huh. 
um, they're a little bit, or the middle, it, it's a little bit dragging his feet, so I might just have to release it without them attached. I really want them attached. Um, but it's going to come out in the next month or two. Right, so uh, it's not publicly available no, right not now. not yet, but soon. So there's an entertainment component to it. It is like the, you know, the blue planet of VR experiences <laughs> underwater. Um, but there's a therapeutic component to this as well, which is where Dr. Andrew Huberman enters, right? Mm -hmm. So when he was on the podcast, he was sharing a little bit about it and he was doing it in the context of explaining how uh, he was using this modality to help people confront and work through their fears. We were talking about David Goggins and his fear of sharks and he was, you know, basically had an experience with your work. Um, but how did you connect with Andrew and what is the, the that aspect of this whole VR thing all about? That was like the universe transpiring is what yeah. that was. Um, because I had the idea for this about four years ago, I was sitting at LAX uh, on my way to Antigua and I was sort of done with sharks. I spent 15 years, I sort of did the book, mm -hmm. I did some TV shows. I just was like, I don't know what else I can do really. And it's so hard to change people's perceptions unless I can bring in, I can't bring everyone, you know, and I'll still do a trip a year or whatever, yeah. but I'm not gonna do what I've been doing. Uh, and I'm gonna start my horse project, which I, my next book with Tashin is a horse book. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sitting at LAX and I'm like, VR, that's the future. And I'd never put a headset on, never tried it. I just was in my head going, that's the future. Where do people want to explore space? NASA owns that underwater. I own that. And I started in my head, I'm like, it's a camera that has, it's a ball of cameras. So right. camera's pointing everywhere. So if I put a, that camera on a stick and it's pointing everywhere, I'm taking you with me. Hold on, I can take you on all the dives with me. And I picked up the phone before the, we boarded and I called my media company. I said, I want to make the Blue Planet VR but I wanna do it for Nat Geo or Discovery. I wanna own it. Will you call the top five production companies and mm. see if they're interested? I'm going into you, I'll call you in three weeks when I'm back. I get back, I, I land literally in like Miami and my phone's like, blah, 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 and he's like, they all wanna meet you. I'm like, oh, great, mm. that means it's a good idea. So I get home on a Wednesday, start making those calls. Two days later, Saturday, I get a phone call out of the blue from Andrew Huberman who knew Ryan Suave, my trauma, you know, guy. Right. And wow. he said, hey, I'm interested in your shark work. And I'm like, yeah, okay. And he's like, this is Andrew Human, had a neuroscience, Stanford, blah, uh -huh. blah. He's like, were you scared of sharks? And I said, yeah, I was petrified of them. And he's like, okay, and now you swim with great whites with no metal suit, no protection, just your camera. And I'm like, yeah. He said, well, what you've done in the neurology is like the free climbing of neurology and you've rewired your brain. And I want to bring you up here so we can start working with you and studying with you because I want to use VR technology to help people overcome PTSD and anxiety. And he didn't know about and I'm your like, Andrew, interest in VR. I'm starting a VR project right now, uh -huh. and I have PTSD. And he's like, "No way!" And I'm like, "Yeah." <laughs> we ended up talking for like two hours that night. And you guys are kind of cut from the same cloth, totally. But I know. didn't know. I'm thinking yeah. a scientist with the white lab right. coat, and the and I ended up flying up to Stanford, and we met. And like, of course, when I met him, I'm like, "We're too," right. you know. He's like not your typical scientist. No, not like at all. he he's into rock and roll, and yeah. you know all the things. So. I do remember the first thing he did say to me, because I'm going to tell your listeners something. Some of them might enjoy hearing this. He's like, do you smoke? And I'm like, no, but I chew Nicorette. Because when my daughter was born, I stopped smoking and I started chewing Nicorette. And at that time, my daughters and my wife and everyone was on me to quit. And I really didn't want to, but I, you know, I was like, whatever. And he, I'm like, no, but I chew Nicorette. He's like, oh, that's actually 
good for you, sort of. Well, he didn't say that. He said, we actually, that's the first thing we give Alzheimer's and Parkinson's patients is Nicorette to chew. It's the perfect delivery because nicotine's a stimulant and it helps their memory and it helps their focus. And it's, it doesn't work with smoking or chewing tobacco, mm-hmm. just Nicorette. And I'm like, yes, no wonder. That's why I love it. Yeah. I'm like, well, then I'm not yeah, stopping. T- I don't want an addict that, uh, I don't want Parkinson or Alzheimer's. <laughs> right. And then I, I was with a, a big actor buddy of mine whose doctor told him the exact same thing because uh-huh. he chews it. So I'm like, yes, I'm not chewing. Anyways, um, we, started, you know, we, he built his VR lab at the time, you know, he had nothing. So, you know, he started building lab. I brought five of his scientists out to Guadalupe. Cause I'm like, so the first thing I was like, I need to make a proof of concept, right. To raise money. I needed to raise money, right. To make a VR, the blue pen of VR, I need money. And I didn't know I needed cameras at the time, but I got the GoPros, went out to Guadalupe with him and four of his scientists. And that year, I don't know if you ever saw the great white that got caught in the cage. No, I don't it think It went so. viral. It was on every news, mm-hmm. CNN. So a great white got, they pulled the bait and there's little windows for cameras in the cages. Mm-hmm. And this little juvenile great white, you know, its tail went and it squeezed through and it's thrashing around inside the cage. Someone's filming all this. And they're watching in like 45 seconds, 30 seconds later, they pull up the top and the shark, you know, jumps out and swims out. And then a person pops up and there was someone in the cage Whoa. the whole time. And there's a whole politics with that. Anyways, that went viral. So there was a lot of pressure at that time on all the boats and the Mexican government. Everyone was pissed and like, you guys look like you're responsible. Mm-hmm. So here I am asking to go out of the cage, which is illegal and, you know, whatever, with a big VR ball camera. And they said, we're going to let you do it because you, you're doing it for PTSD. Like we're going to turn, turn, Give you an you know, we're going to turn the way or the other mm-hmm. and let you do. So I made it and my takeaway coming back was, all right, I need to raise millions of dollars. And I need to build a whole new camera system that doesn't exist because I'm not using GoPros. And I need to do both of those things in like three months because animals are migratory. So if I don't get it done in three months, I have to wait a whole other year. Uh And I went up to Facebook and I started – because Blue Planet took six years and $60 million, somewhere in that, five years and $50 million, whatever, a lot to get done. And I was like, I'm going to do this in a year and I need, you know, not that much money but, you know, whatever, 10% Uh of that, a lot. And no one was putting money into VR, especially yeah. this type of VR. Like, you know, Facebook's like, yeah, it's really cool. Because when I cut it, when I put it together, I was like, holy sh! this is like, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted it to be stereoscopic. Anyways, long story short, and this is sort of how I know the universe transpired with the whole thing. So I met Andrew doing that, which we got a permission to exit the cage because of the scientific work with it, with Mauricio Hoya. So uh-huh. we were elite, allowed legally to leave the cage and film when we were down there. My chiropractor of all people has this book in his office signed. And he does, you know, he does the Clippers and, you know, right. who's who in Hollywood or whatever, right. right? Rihanna's walking out, Bieber's, you know, he's that guy. And he calls me, he's like, hey, one of my clients wants to meet you. He saw your book. And I'm like, yeah, dude, anything for uh-huh. you, sure. Uh, tomorrow, Peninsula Hotel. I'm like, great, hang up. I call him back like an hour later. I'm like, who, who am I meeting? Because it could be anyone. Who? No. But I called him back. I'm like, well, yeah. who am I meeting? Because this could be, and he's like, oh, it's a great guy. He's a diver. He's like a billionaire and he loves the mm-hmm. ocean. I'm like, okay, great. So I go down the next morning and I bring the VR with the little two minute sizzle thing, show it to him. And he, he's like, oh, you know, he takes it off. And he's like, holy shit. Like, wow, that is amazing. I'm like, I'm looking for a, an investor. He's like, well, do you have a business plan? I'm like, yeah. He's like, oh, send it to me. You know, maybe I'll do it. I'm like, great. Send it to him. 
radio silence for three weeks. So I remember laying down like three weeks later in bed. I'm like, that guy's, you know, flaking. All right, I'm going to put out the great white thing and I'll try to sell that, raise the money to do the rest. The next morning I get a text from him. He's like, so sorry. I was in the Cayman Islands. I want to invest. Can you be in Texas tomorrow? Mm. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll be in Texas tomorrow. So I went out and I sat across him. I said, listen, we don't have the time to like do a month-long negotiation. I need the money. I need it like tomorrow or we're going to miss and we hammered out a deal, and he was like the dream investor, sort of blank check. Wow. With his only – his goal was to go on some cool dives with me. Like, mm. That was all he wanted mm-hmm. out of the deal. He didn't expect like anything special to be made or whatever. He just wanted to go on some cool dives, which he got to go on some dives of his life, I got to say. And we cut uh, that film that you saw. We brought it to Trade Becca Film Festival, and it blew up. And the Cannes Film Festival called, and I brought it there. Um, and then, you know, we decided to just put it out ourselves. And instead of making like four films, of course, the the addict, as yeah. you say, and me, I'm like, all right, I'm going to do all of them at once and right. nine, and editing nine different films. And, mm. and it's taken me a good year and a half. And I have amazing Academy Award winning composers and rock, paper, scissors, like one of the best editing, right. just amazing, you know, people around me. And it's been a, it's been a really amazing experience. So uh, the full series is what, like nine hours long or something? No, like no, that? no. It's, it's, uh, it's almost two hours. So oh, there's okay. nine films that range between five minutes and 10 minutes. Got it. And I had like Eli Roth, uh, do the uh-huh. VO on one of them. Cause I was like, I don't want to hear my voice on every single uh-huh. one. And then like Laird and his daughters and my daughters came on a trip. So the great white trip sort of from the eyes of the kids and their right. dads, you know, being me and Laird and, and Laird talking. And, uh-huh. Um, so, and there's orcas like sort of That's rays cool. and manatees and ocean crocodiles, saltwater crocodiles. Uh-huh. It's, it's cool. That's super cool. So coming to your Oculus soon. Yes. Coming to your point. Oculus, coming to every, your <laughs> right. Oculus or your HTC, coming to any headset and then coming to your mobile phones and pricing it so that in a way that everyone will buy, right. no one has an so excuse because cool. uh, most of the VR out there that's priced, in my opinion, is too much. People aren't into pain, but if it's and couple, aspect, a couple bucks for the whole series. What about the um, work that you're doing with Andrew specifically though, mm-hmm. like taking this footage and using it in, in a way that's helping people overcome their fears or dealing yeah. with their PTSD? Well, I know he's in the process there, you know, doing some writing some papers. So I don't know what I'm really allowed to talk about. I know they've uh-huh. had some amazing successes up there with the reduction in stress, doing breathwork protocol, different mm-hmm. things to help people relieve their stress. And what he created was like a, a VR space where they go in because how do you face a near-death experience? You know what I mean? Like a realistic one. Like if you go to the front lines of Afghanistan and bring a VR camera why people are shooting at right. you, like going out of a cage with a shark is sort mm-hmm. of a near-death experience mm-hmm. in a way that I can sort of film it and control it. But so you could have, see it do, being used in various ways. Like you could go cave diving or you could yeah. just all these- The claustrophobia. All these kind of things that, that create fear in people. Yeah. And they're monitoring them. pupil imagery, sweat glands, like everything uh-huh. going on. So when you're wired up, in your in the lab in the video, you, you yeah, know, you see you and Andrew's they lab. Get, what are they monitoring and like? What did well, they? Well, you'd figure have to ask out? him because I asked him and they wouldn't tell <laughs> me because tell it will it uh-huh. would affect. Well, he did tell me one thing. So one of the first tests they did is where you put on the headset and you basically are on a high wire in between buildings or you're a plank, so oh, to speak. And they would, say that's terrifying. Take four steps out, which I do. Turn to your right and and then they're like step. You know, take a step forward. 
And I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, I'm in my headset. I'm like, okay, well, this is, you know, this is what it's like to kill yourself. So I'm going to enjoy <laughs> right. it. And I jump off. And then I hear them outside of the headphones, like mumbling and reboot. They're like, okay, we're going to have you do it again. So I did it again. And this time I'm like, well, I'm going to look down this time to see what it's like with the ground coming. Like if you're going to jump off a building uh -huh. to like watch it come up at you, which I did. So after that, he said, I can't tell you about all your other results, but I will tell you this. You are the first and only person that's ever done that experience that sort of didn't like tiptoe out. Like you just jumped off. Right. No one does that. And he said, we thought you messed up. So we had you do it again and you did it again, both times. And he just was like, you. And that means what? That you've worked through your fear response and a. He a wouldn't tell me what that means, but it was interesting. I was, when you watch like the documentary Free Solo with uh -huh. Alex Honnold yeah, sure. and he's doing the MRI and his, uh -huh. you know, the front part yeah, of his no, brain isn't lighting right, up. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things, so me and Andrew. I talked are, to him about that. I had him on the podcast yeah. and we talked all about that. Yeah, I, I actually just saw Jimmy Chen like to uh -huh. me, he's a really good friend of mine. Oh, cool. We, he's been on the show too. Yeah, he's the Chad. best. I love yeah. Jimmy. Um, you know, uh, me and Alex, I mean, me and um, Andrew have a trip we're planning on going in two months. You know, uh, we think that they'll allow us because of the scientific work out to Guadalupe because it's closed because right. of COVID. Everything's closed. But one of the things, you know, we really want to study is when we're out of the cage. So like if we take you out of the cage, it's never done it. What's going on? your reaction compared to what's going on in my reaction, mm -hmm. what's lighting up. Like eventually we'd love to be able to look at our brains while out of the cage and see, you know, what's lighting up and what's not right. lighting up. Uh, so stuff like that. Um, uh, and, um, you know, one of the things I have been doing is like human guinea pig testing colors, like do shark see colors. So I had Patagonia, which is a company that I work with, make me different colored wetsuits to see the reactions of the mm -hmm. sharks, which sure enough, from the small study that I've done, they definitely are attracted to yellow. Yeah. Not any other color, but the yellow, they were just like, choo, 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 coming at me. Really? And then I found out Mick Fanning, when he got attacked in J-Bay, the bottom of his board was yellow. So I'm like, ah. So that's good knowledge to have because you can tell divers and you can tell, you know, yeah. people that are in shark populated any color waters. Repel them? Avoid yellow. Not that I've seen, but there's a, you know, there's those companies that make uh, supposed shark repellent wetsuits that are striped and mm -hmm. what have you. Uh, I didn't have, so that's, I'd like to get my hands on one of those to sort of show that it works or doesn't right. work. My guess is, <laughs> at least with great whites, it's not going to work. Uh -huh. That's interesting about yellow. Yeah, I've had some funny, I had a company call me up and say they were making stickers for the bottom of surfboards. This is, this is true story. Uh, and they were like, will you put on, so it's like two eyeballs and like a scary mouth to make your surfboard look like a monster. Mm -hmm. And this guy really thought that it would, he literally was dead serious. I want you to go out in Guadalupe and paddle on a surfboard to show that this will scare away. The, and I'm like, mm -hmm. have you ever seen a great white? And he's like, no. I'm like, yeah, I didn't think so. Why don't you go out on a surfboard and paddle your little stickers <laughs> on the board? Because I am not going to do that. Yeah. And I can't even uh -huh. believe that you're asking me to, like, you're uh -huh. insane. So people, uh, there's some interesting uh -huh. ones out there. It always struck me as odd that that most wetsuits are black, though, because uh, then you just look like a seal. You look like a seal, right? Yeah. Right? Well, you got to think when when you you know I'm sure you've seen those on Shark Week or so whatever when they show a seal and a surfer up at the surface. Uh -huh. 
it wouldn't matter what color you're wet to because you're silhouetted against the right, light. So you're right. just a you're black. You're always going to look black. You're looking like a, a seal. But sharks are so smart. We've put cameras in decoys. So in South Africa, we, we tow fake seals behind the boat to get them to breach on them, to take photos of them and see, et cetera, right? So we've put cameras and literally nine times out of 10, the shark realizes it's fake before and it turns off. Wow. Um you know, I was a- actually able, and you'll see in the book, to capture the first great white breaching at nighttime, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which no one, the scientists, because I was like, does it breach at night? Because I had my lights. So yeah, the light, the strobe doesn't work during the day, right? Exactly, so you want to yeah. go back at night. So I went back at night and we had one and it and it hit and I took the photo too quick. I got too excited because all you got to see is white water exploding and it's night and you're in the back of the boat. I'm like, fuck, because I got the head, not the body out. And I put the camera back and they never never breached twice on a on a on a decoy ever and i for whatever reason put my camera back and like 10 seconds later the shark hit it again and i uh-huh. waited a tenth of a second and then hit it and got the first ever which ran in the new york times yeah. magazine it was it was really cool to be able to show scientists a behavior that had never been captured before that's the god that shot a, yeah it was a proud so moment. in the book there's you have both right there's one where that you just see the head kind of coming out and yeah. then you have the full breach right yeah. so that was the first one yeah. and then right so yeah. that's the same shark yeah it was a little one but it was it was really cool uh-huh. to uh, to see all lit up like that crazy yeah it's neat having those you know i mean it's it's when I would go down to Guadalupe, I had, you know, six assistants holding lights in mm-hmm. different places. And historically, you can't talk, right? But I did get an OTS system so I could talk in my assistants because, you know, otherwise they're looking yeah, over at me. how are you coordinating all of this? We try, you know, hand signals. I'm like, and all they're seeing is bubbles and me doing this. You know, it's frustrating. I never yell at my guys, like when I'm shooting in the studio or whatever. There's uh-huh. just, I'm not that guy. There's a lot of photographers are, I guess, but I don't. But I've never yelled at them more than underwater. Of course, none of them heard it. It's just right. me going, bubbles. But I was Yeah, like, but you're also oh. in a situation where all you can do is set the stage. You can't yeah. control what transpires on nope. that stage. You can't nope. tell them, hey, you got to. No, I mean, here, when we'd come up, know? I'd be like, hey, next time would you try to do this? And, <laughs> you know, but these guys are like, they're holding lights and they're seeing shark. They're not like, right. at the end of the day, they're like, oh my God, that shark's cool. And the light's going down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, it's got to be wild though. Like you just mentioned the photograph of the shark running in the New York Times. Like when you see your work out in the wild, like your work's everywhere. We didn't even talk about all the studio work that you do. I mean, you've photographed the posters for every blockbuster, essentially, at mm-hmm. least all the Marvel stuff, like everywhere you turn, your work is like omnipresent in the world. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've done a lot of, um, a lot of, you know, out campaign, a lot of images people have mm-hmm. seen that, you know, I'm people have joked or called me like the most famous photographer you've never heard of. <laughs> yeah, you're kind of all shucks about the whole thing, but yeah, I, you know, they, it's pretty fucking awesome. I learned I learned a while. I was guilty of having that, like, I want to shoot the cover of Vanity Fair. I want to do this. And I did realize, like, none of that stuff fulfills you. Like, the minute you get that, you're like, okay, what's next? Well, mm. I want to do this. Like, it's never going to be enough. And I remember it was sort of around the same time that, like, Herb Ritz, Helmut Newton, and I think it was Irving, three f- master photographers died within mm. a year. And I watched the photographer world not miss a beat. And I remember just going like, it really doesn't matter what pictures, like 
if I was to die today, like there's another guy. Yeah, it's Skip just gonna Seliger. mess on. Yeah, they're gonna like it's it's gonna go. And then when my time comes, I'm not gonna say, oh, bring me, bring me that photo of that Marvel Avengers thing. No, I'm gonna want my family and the people I love around me, right? Mm. So what are my priorities? And I just sort of stop. I mean, I do have the once like. When Kobe passed, the cover of Time Magazine, yeah. I thought that was cool just because he was he was such an amazing guy. He was a huge Shark fan, and, you know, was, he's an icon, and that was an honor. It was more of an honor. I was humbled at that. Yeah. Um, you know? Yeah, we should just say for people that are watching or listening who don't know, you're the person who photographed that iconic image of Kobe that ended up on Time Magazine. Well, and the bow, really he become, was bowing. He was bow, right, yeah. bowing. And that has become the definitive, most iconic photograph of Kobe that in his passing has kind of resurfaced as, you know, the emblem of who this individual was. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah, it was, you know, that's, those are the I mean, bittersweet. Cover too. Yeah. But like, there's a part of me that's like, really? Like, this is how I'm getting Time Magazine? Because Kobe, had, like, died, I don't want yeah. Kobe to pass yeah. to get the cover of Time. At the same time, I know Kobe would want the coolest shot of him on the cover of Time Magazine. You know what I mean? Um, so, you know, it was, it, it was an honor. I thought that photo, that was the last ad campaign he did for Nike before he retired as mm-hmm. a Laker. So it was like his last mm-hmm. shoot. Um, but what uh, people might not know is that Kobe was a huge shark freak. Like he had a photo, a print in his locker to fire him up. And he, we talked, cause I've shot him quite a few times. Right. Well, and you he, hear about the Mamba, but you don't hear about the sharks. I know, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm giving you a little, a little backstory. So he, he really wanted to go see Great Whites, right? And he was like, well, can, you, can I take a helicopter out there? Because it's an 18-hour boat trip to Guadalupe. Uh-huh. And I've tried over the years because I have some sort of high-profile friends who don't have the time to go do it. So like, well, can I get a you know a jet out? Can I take right. a plane? So I've looked into all those, and there's like a seaplane, right? But he's like, can I do a helicopter? I'm like, no. But then I stopped, and I'm like, well. If there's any way to figure out a helicopter out there, it's you. So yeah. I'm not going to say no, but I don't think you can. Maybe nine months later, he came in. I think it was for Turkish Air. I don't know what it was, but he comes up. Literally, there's you know 80 people on the set, and, he, and people are like, "Hey!" And he, he, I could see him lasering on me, and he comes right up. He's like, "Hey, I did it! I did it!" And I was like, "You took? You got the helicopter?" He's like, "No, no, I went on the shark trip." I'm like, "Oh, how did you get there?" He's like, "I had to take the boat." I'm like, "Ah, mm. I knew it." But uh, he, he did it without you, up. though. Yeah, I know he did it. He, yeah, he, he did do it without me. Wow. So you spent quite a bit of time with him. Yeah, I mean, not, not I didn't spend. I mean, I just shot him quite a few times over the years. He was uh-huh. one of my uh, when I first shot him. I was doing a lot of work with ESPN magazine, and the editor I gave her my like. I really want to shoot Kobe because I had Laker season seats for right. six years. Me and my daughters would go to all the the games when they won their championships and. Um, he was on my list. It was him, Muhammad Ali. It was like two others. And I remember when she called, she's like, okay, I'm getting you your, and I was like, no way. And I did my, you know, first shoot with him. Then I, you know, ended up shooting for the other stuff. But yeah, I just, you know, it's, there's a lot. I I feel like um, most of the higher profile celebrities, actors, and a lot of music, they, they have a fascination with sharks. They, mm. People love guys, especially, but there's some, is some that females like out there the too. Is that alpha mentality? What is that? Yeah, I think it's that. And, and they're the apex predator over the oceans. Right. You know what I mean? They're, you know, they're great white sharks. Like, you know, everyone watches shark week, I feel like. And, you know, people love sharks, love to hate them, love, right. you know, it's that fear fascination thing. 
When you look at that image of of Kobe and it, you know, given that it's it's become so iconic, like to you, what is the what makes the difference between like a good photograph and a timeless photograph like that? Well, I know that every time I'm shooting, I'm trying, I'm aiming for iconic, you know, I'm aiming for Thomas. I'm aiming to show something or someone in a way that you haven't seen before. That's my goal. So whenever I'm shooting people, I'm trying to pull out of them also their real, like take the mask off, so to speak, and give me that emotion. Show me who you really are. Um, and I do that in a way that I usually shoot very quickly and I direct um, so that the person because in my experience, no one really likes getting their photo taken. Mm. It's a very vulnerable, uh, their insecurities come out, right? Like, oh my God, my double chin. Oh, I'm balding. Like when you show anyone 90 photos of themselves, they're not looking at the one and being like, God, I look amazing. Look at that shot. Look how good I look. They're going right to the one that they're like, oh my God, I'm so fat. I need to, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, well, I don't know if you know what I mean, but that's yeah, what no, happens I, when you show people. And if 99 of them are good and one's like whatever, they're going to the one. So I try to, you know, I, I, I go for that. And, you know, with the Kobe, obviously it was circumstances and, you know, the position and the shots and, and what have you. But, um, you know, it's, it's something I don't look at photography. I don't go down to magazine racks. I don't look online. I don't want to be influenced by, by anyone that. else. Right. I really shoot in the moment and go for what, what I'm going for, you know? So, but it is Hollywood, right? So it's that, it's that, that trope of like, that's why they're hiring you because they want your unique perspective, your yeah. specific look. But then there's a whole committee of people mm -hmm. that like, I, I would imagine if you're shooting like a Marvel campaign, they want it to be a very specific way, right? So there's gotta be some kind of tension, creative tension there. No, not, well, yes and no. Like, uh, you know, Marvel, I, I started with Iron Man 1 from the beginning. Mm. Um, so and you when, created the look then? I didn't create the look, but I helped create the look. I played a part in it. Uh -huh. And I think they respect that, my my experience and my talent. Um, so it's a collaboration. It's me, it's the actors, it's the studio, it's the marketing people. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm one part of the machine. It's definitely by no means me, um, but I do play a part. Um, and... Um, they they look for for my input and that's why i think they come to me because i've never you can approach those like oh it's just another job and go in and do the routine like put the white seamless mm -hmm. up shoot things do the lights do the hero shot but i am and i think my clients see that always trying to raise the bar so like I remember on one of the Avengers, you know, I brought in bands because uh, we were going to do a big battle scene. So instead of having them sort of pose like fight things, I had those elastic bands so that they could really get into, you know, the, the they're things and their yeah. veins and their uh -huh. neck because I want it to feel real. I want it to be a real moment. You know, and when I'm shooting uh, actors or a person and I want to laugh uh, you can't be like, hey, laugh, because then they're like, ha, 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 and you, it's, there's nothing to resonate. So mm -hmm. I will say something to make myself look like an idiot or something to get them to laugh. Or if someone says something and they laugh, my finger is always on the trigger. So I'm like, bop, 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 and I uh -huh. get that real, ha, 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 and, and, and when you look at the photo, it resonates you through, tell. you know? Yeah. So in shooting these, all the, the, the quote unquote, like superheroes, like what is your, what do you think is your strength or your superpower? Because like you said, there's tons of talented photographers out there, 
but there's a reason why you're the guy who gets selected to shoot all these massive campaigns. Like what is it? And, and it's, it's gotta be more than like, well, I, I have a unique, you know, angle on it, or I try to make it real. Like, what is it about you that you're the guy? I think it's a combination of things. I think it's a combination of my, my ability to light. Uh, I, I've mastered lighting, you know, uh, that's what photography is, is lighting, how you light. And, and I can light things in a variety of ways. My relationship with talent and how I can disarm people uh, and get actors to maybe do things that they mm. don't want to or like give us the extra time uh, that are willing to do that um, because I respect them. I respect their time and I respect their opinions, uh, what they're comfortable and not comfortable doing. I never force someone to mm -hmm. do something they don't want or try to trick them. Or, um, so there's that respect level. There's the creativity that I bring to, uh, to my jobs. Uh, and like I've said, I'm always I'm, I guess I have a bit of people pleasing in me and I'm always trying to raise the bar and I'm trying to make my clients happy. Um, and at the end of the day, when it comes to the big movies, these things are $300 million investment. They know that I'm going to deliver no matter what right. happens. Right. And when you've got actors and I'm, I can't tell you how many films, like I remember on a, a few of the Wolverines or whatever, you know, we had Hugh for eight minutes because they're, they're making a movie, uh -huh. right? And we're like the illegitimate stepchild that like, you know, all right, here, you can have them for 10 minutes. Even though it's the biggest, it's what gets butts It's the, it's the most forward-facing aspect of the whole movie. Man, people go to <laughs> movies because of the trailer on TV <laughs> yeah. and because of those billboards. Uh -huh. And you look up and you go, oh, that looks dope. And you're going to go, or that looks so bad. And you're probably not going to see it. Mm. An incredibly important part of it, but for some reason does not get the uh, priority that it, in my opinion, should. Um, and so I, no matter what happens, we'll get those shots. And, and, you know, I've had Hugh for eight minutes and done three different lighting setups and gotten them everything from the intense portraits to the fighting, to the, uh -huh. this and that. And I think they know that and they're not going to, you know, it's like, do you want to try this new guy? Right. Yeah. You know, yeah, and have down and have Robert yeah. be like, uh, yeah, I'm, you know, so. Right. And, then, you know, and I've had that. I remember I remember Robert on Iron Man 2. Uh, the first Iron Man, the, the suit was like up to, he had like half mm -hmm. of his body or whatever, right? That's the, Things are not comfortable to act in. Yeah. The real suits and what have you. And on Iron Man 2, um, we were at the, we were at the studio and whatever, he's not going to care if I talk about this and studio people are probably, I don't know. They're not he was listening. like, they were like, um, will you, uh, he won't put the suit on. He won't put the, the headpiece on the shoulder piece and he won't do it. We've all asked him, will you ask him? And I'm like, are you kidding? You're, <laughs> you want me to go ask him? You he said, no, uh -huh. please. Cause he likes you. He'll do it. I'm like, oh my God. So I go over and I'm like, Robert, listen. I know I can Photoshop your face in, but it, it's not the same. It's not the same organic. Cause mm -hmm. anyway, he's like, he literally like there was like six of them and he's like, I'll bleed them. And he went like that. He's like, listen, for you, I'll do it. 10 minutes. All right, great. Mm -hmm. Start this up. I'm like, no, 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 no. 10 minutes of shooting. Like I need 10 minutes. And he's like, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Right. So he sat down, he fixed. And he's like, all right, start the stopwatch. They started it. I shot 580 frames in 10 minutes <laughs> and I got it all. Like the hand out, uh -huh. did it all. And that was it. Iron Man 3 had a black with green dot. Like he's never put the suit on again. And right. I would never ask him again. Uh-huh. 
Uh-oh. Right, but you had that trust. You'd engendered enough goodwill with a guy like that. Yeah, that he, no, that, I, I know, have that, can, and and right. and I think I I have that with uh, with with the the actress. You know, listen, I've been shooting for thirty five years in this mm. town. I've pretty much shot them all. Like uh-huh. they've either I've either shot them or, you know, I think they're gonna know coming in my my pedigree and and respect that I know what I'm doing. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, they want to get in and out and, and actors are used to being directed. I think everyone wants direction, like tell me what to do. And I tell them, you know what I mean? And it's, yeah. and, you know, it's an interesting position when you're a photographer and you have some of the most powerful people on the planet and you're like, you know, Barack Obama, like, look here, like, I need you to write, look, you're telling people what to do. Uh-huh. It's, a, it's a little exhilarating. <laughs> they're doing what you tell. Yeah, it doesn't matter they're who trusting they are. You're, you get to be in charge of them. For, I am, and when you walk on my set, minutes. I am in charge. Yeah. And it starts with me from uh-huh. the from the stylist, the hair, everyone. And if there's any indecision, if there's any fear, any of that, it's like a virus. Right. So no matter what's happening, I can be in a studio and, and 12 of my 13 lights blow up. And I'll still be fine. I'll be like cool mm-hmm. as a cucumber. Mm-hmm. Like, take that one light, bring it over here, get that bounce board, and da-da. I'll never show fear because it's right. just like, what's the so solution? They feel secure and safe that you're in control and you know what you're doing. Yeah, and the motto and my motto, and I think it's with life is, what's the solution? Not what's the problem. What's the solution? Mm-hmm. What are we going to do? What do we need to do? You know, and I think I approach that with life too. You know, what what's, is the what solution? is. What is your relationship with creativity? Like, how do you think about that as an energy? We talked about earlier that moment, you know, like when you're meditating, when you quiet everything down and that channel, because I don't think great ideas come from me. I think they're given to me from the universe. I think they come down. And I truly do believe if you have a good idea, like 10 people are getting that at the same time and it's Mm. who's first to implement. Yeah. Uh, I don't feel like I'm some terminally unique that I'm the only one getting ideas, but really- Did you, did you read uh, Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Big Magic? Mm-mm. It's all about that. It's all about the, the idea that that like great ideas are out there and it's about honing your antenna. And there's a reason why people kind of have those ideas at the same time. And it's about who's the right receiver for that. Yeah. I started reading Buddha and the Badass, uh-huh. which is- uh, really implementing the the same type of thing, uh, bending reality and manifesting. He gave me words to things I've been doing my whole life, but I never had a word for it. Uh, and there's like a little step process in there about getting the right team around you. Because when you have an idea, which I believe is really true, and the universe will give you all the things mm. really quickly to get it done if you believe and you're in the right place. Mm. And like a bus, you need the right people in the right seats to get things done, especially bigger projects. Right. Uh, which I know I've shared with you a couple. I'm working on a, I'm working. I'm a founder in a company. We have a new material that looks, acts, feels like plastic, but dissolves in water and in five to ten minutes. It's a game changer. Yeah, you, know, you showed me some stuff about this. It's a great example of, you know, starting a company, starting a project and having the right people around and, you know, the right people coming in to then implement it. And then only in the future will I be able to look back and see the dots that connected, you right. know, to, to to get us to where we're going. But you have to be open for those. Uh, uh-huh. Anyways, Buddha and the Badass is a great book. Yeah. And you're going to solve the plastic problem. 
I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to help because I'll tell you, <laughs> diving the amount I do, the plow, the amount of plastic that are in our ocean is just mind-boggling. And the microplastics, mm. you go look at the beach and you see all those little pieces of plastic, well, that the fish are eating and then we're eating the fish, which means plastic is going right. into us. And it's uh, 9 million tons enter our ocean every year. It's a nightmare. So to have a, a, a solution for single-use plastic that's going about to come out, and I think it'll be uh, it'll be revolutionary, and it'll be it's exciting to be part of it. When you hear a hundred million sharks are killed every year, what where what is what is going on? Why are they being? Ki- I mean, you hear about shark fin and all of that, but is it at that scale? A hundred yeah. million sharks? Yeah. for that. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 been uh, gut wrenching to look at. Um, there's 2,500, I think, fishing vessels off Ecuador right now. Sorry to say, but they're all from China. Uh, there, you can see them on satellites because of COVID, right? There's no, mm-hmm. they're not out. People aren't out protecting. And literally, I remember when I was in the Galapagos a year and a half ago, they had captured an illegal fishing vessel that had 10,000 10, tons, just some obscene amount number right. of. Sh- dead sharks. They had a dead pregnant whale shark in there. And they just, you know, they go and they just drop net and they just kill everything in its path. Uh, and then there's long landing where they're killing everything to get a certain fish, but like they're killing dolphin and turtles, right. which what I don't understand is if you went to any country and you put a line of hooks out in a forest and you killed all the bears and squirrels and raccoons and you killed animals at that level, people would be up in arms, mm-hmm. up in arms. But we do it in the ocean. And uh, when you kill the top predator of a very fragile, well, the top of the very fragile ecosystem, which the sharks are, they keep the, the oceans healthy. They, the, it's like a domino effect yeah. that's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. It and makes then you the look whole at ecosystem unstable. Seven of eight people on our planet live off the ocean. You know that's where they get their substance. And when you start having no fish, like when you go to, you know, Africa, these they're gonna they keep having to go out farther and farther to try to mm-hmm. find a fish. Like they mm-hmm. may catch one shark in a month where they used to catch one every mm-hmm. day. Yeah, I mean, isn't that part of why the Somali pirate thing started to happen? Because the fishing dried up. Right. Well, in these countries, certain countries will go in and say, We'll build you a power plant. We want all the fishing rights, right? Like you'll give them a power plant and then they just pillage the whole mm. ocean till there's nothing there. They throw dynamite out onto the reefs to just blow up and kill and all the fish. You know, right. come. It's it's insane the way we treat our planet. Yeah. Um, you know, I do believe though that mother, I've just seen mother nature. I've seen our, the power that, you know, and I think we see it now more and more with the fires and they're like, if we don't solve it, mother nature will for us, you know, and swat us off her back like fleas off a dog, you know. On that tip, um, you're like really good friends with Joaquin Phoenix, right? Who's really, you know, at the forefront of getting the animal welfare message out to the mainstream. Yeah. So yeah. where did that kind of come together? How did that? You go way back with him, right? We do. He is a, he is a really good friend. I will say he. Uh, I'm going to keep it really brief because I respect his uh-huh. privacy, which is why we're really good friends. Um, he he's been an, an amazing inspiration to me. The way he leads his life, the roles he takes um, with his work, with his creative work, uh, the roles he takes with our planet, and how he lives his life. He lives by example, mm-hmm. and he's been an amazing example to me, uh, and an amazing friend. Uh, one of just an amazing. Tr- keep saying the word amazing, but just a really big heart. 
I love them and I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Have you been to any of the cow vigils? I have. Yeah. You, yeah. Should, you should shoot those. I, I mean, did. I wanted brought, to make a VR. Do you know Sean Monson? I, I do. Yeah. yeah. He just actually texted uh-huh. me on the way here. Um, I went down with him and a couple of people, but I was thinking about making a, a VR of it, you know, like so you could see. I mean, it's it's gut wrenching. Right. <laughs> Seeing those poor yeah. cows and people yeah, spraying yeah, the yeah. water. And yeah, it's, uh, in fact, I just got a text from the guy who did Game Changers. You see that? Oh, like, James. Such, yeah. yeah. Uh huh. It's, uh, it's cool to see movies like that take an impact. You know, I think. That's what I made this series for isn't our generation. Mm -hmm. Like I've written off our generation. It's this next one, you know, these kids, they're the ones we've got too. And I am excited. I don't know if it's just an LA thing. I live in LA, so I see young people in LA. I don't know if this is how they are in Kentucky or or Ohio, but like a lot of them are vegan. Like uh, they're really pissed off at the climate you know, that they're inheriting and they're sort of like activists. I feel like they, they're, they're pissed. I mean, you have that, it's like one or the other, they're either really lazy and don't want to do shit and expect, you know, they want to be a millionaire by the time they're 21, but not really do anything to get the millionaire. <laughs> right. And then at the flip side, you see these activists, these young, uh-huh. you know, it's like Greta, like you see these yeah, kids and they're, and they're like, Hey, f-, f you, man, you're really giving us a planet that's this messed up. Mm-hmm. Which boggles my mind. And, you know, I go like, how does the owner of Shell or Mobile, they have to have kids and grandkids. Like, don't you care about our planet? Like, I think there's such a a level of of denial and a distribution of responsibility in those massive organizations that allows them to, you know, lay their head on the pillow at night and feel like they're not as culpable as they really are. And I think the accumulation of that has created this next generation who are so hip to like what's going on and so committed to change and so open to these new ideas. And that really gives me hope. I mean, our generation, you know, it's like trying to get people to change their minds, especially right now about anything. Good luck with that, right? But- Yeah, it's it's like the sharks, you know, people are scared of sharks from Jaws and stuff. You know, I think uh, our movies and TV and what we have, promoted this like money makes you happy like you have to have a lot of money and success and and it's when you look at the facts that like you have a baseline of 50% happiness and no happiness comes from any type of financial mm-hmm. 40% of happiness comes from giving so when you give is where you get your joy and happiness from it's not making a bunch of money and you get the same effect of if you got if i handed you $25,000 what you would feel, right? 25,000 cash. And if you also do this and you smile, the same feeling. Like you get the same yeah. neuro, yeah. Yeah. From, Is that from smiling. Straight, straight from Huberman's mouth? Straight from scientific, not <laughs> Huberman, but I did uh-huh. hear it from scientific. So it's like, you know, uh, giving. Like it's right. like, you know, just, and that's been, that's been the law. I have my peers ask me, how do you work so much? You work more than anyone I know. And I look at them, every single person that asks me, and I say the same thing, because I give. I'm a UN global advocate. I go to Africa and all mm. over the, and document refugees. And then I try to help with the sharks. Like I constantly, and it's a universal law. It's a law. If you give, it comes back. Mm. Like it does. And it comes yeah. back tenfold. Yeah. Uh, people just, but they're afraid, you know, so oh, I don't need the next, you know. The- right. Yeah. I mean, I've experienced that in my life a thousand times over and I've seen it happen in so many other people's lives. And it's something that, 
you know, we hear and we can intellectually kind of understand, but on some level we feel like it doesn't really apply to us. Like I can imagine somebody listening to this saying, that's all great because you're so successful, but you know, if I got that billboard or if I got that job, then, you know, it would be different from me. And it's just not the case. There is a spiritual law yeah. that takes place. And actually you can use it selfishly. Like if you're desiring to advance your life in a certain way, just start giving more, even if it's not coming from a place of heart purity, right. and it's coming from a place of like personal, a personal desire to advance your life. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It still will work. It still totally works. <laughs> you know, I don't know why. Neither do I, but, but and I love, and you know, it's sort of like, you know, Greg owns Sideshow. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the One co- of the most giving people I've ever met. That's why I'm bringing them up as an yeah. example. When the Kobe image, you know, I knew people wanted, they're going to want that image, a print of that image. And as an artist, you know, I, I make gallery, I make editions. I sell shark prints, right? So the first thing I did was I made that Kobe print available at like eight by 10, a sort of smaller size for a very affordable, like $30, $40. I called Greg. Well, he had called me and we both talked and I was like, I want to give a hundred percent of it away. Mm. And he's like, great, cool. I'm like, yes. Because right. most business, well, what about 50%? You know, yeah, people yeah. are like, I want to give it all away, which we did. And we gave to this amazing organization called Genesis. And she actually just called and was like, I cannot tell you how much that money, like, chain, you know, just opened up a ton of doors. But, you know, look at his business. You know, I just love meeting people that they use that in their life and you get to see. The yeah, fruits of the that. largesse of their own life. Yeah, uh, you know, expands, you know, to a degree that's exponential in proportion to the amount of giving. Yeah, and you see it time and time again. And I think that print, you could buy it on the Sideshow website right now. You can buy it on Sideshow, yeah. and then I made an edition of twenty-four much larger fine uh-huh. art prints that I'm selling at a, a site called Plastic Gallery uh-huh. that's on Artsy as well. And we are also giving to Genesis, and those are color and black and white. And then there's like sixteen other images, I think, or seventeen, right. but all edition of twenty-four. And once the twenty-four are sold, I'll never make that Kobe Bell image that's it. again. Yeah, yeah, that's great, that's man. That's so. great. Um, all right. Well, we can we can wrap this up. What else? You have any other projects that are going on right now? Like uh, new yeah. books? You're working on the horse book. I'm doing a, a horse book for for Tashin. Uh, you know, I'm uh, getting ready to release the the VR series. Mm-hmm. Um, I have uh, I have my you know other. Uh, business with the uh, material that I'm doing. And then I am working on an app, uh, which we are going to put out as sort of augmented reality, Uh which I've heard about for four years and never have been impressed with any of it. And then I saw something that just blew me away. So we have the developers working on that. And uh, That's all you're going to say about that? That's all I'm going to say about that. Wait, what? Like, I don't even know what you're talking about, but all right. Yeah, I think it'll blow your mind too. (laughs) Okay, man. Final thing, uh, advice to the young creative out there, the young photographer who's just starting out or the young activist who's seeking to make an impact in the world. What do you say to that person? I mean, the first thing I'd say is what I sort of write in every book, which is there is nothing to fear, but fear itself. So do not let fear control your life. You're either in fear or you're in faith, one or two. And I think if you just try having some faith, trust the universe, follow your dreams, you'll start to see results. Uh, but you just got to have that trust. 
Um, and the second thing is the young creatives, like, please, please, please follow your dream. Do your creative. Don't chase the money. Because I, in 35 years, have never once woken up and been like, oh, I got to go to work today. Not once. I get paid and made a living doing something I love to do. I wake up every day and be like, oh, I'm so excited to go create. That's a, it's just a gift. Yeah, it's such a gift. And it's, you know, we only get one life. Well, I don't know. It might get a bunch, but mm. this is the only life I have. And I definitely don't want to be 70, 80 going like, oh, I wish I always wanted to go here or do this. I always wanted to take pictures. Do it. Life's so short. It's precious. You have today. Forget about all your yesterdays. What are you going to do today? That's it. Good talking to you, man. Good talking Thank to you, you man. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. That was powerful. Uh, if you're digging on Michael, you're easy to find on the internet. Uh, Instagram, keep sharing those ice yeah. bath At stories. Michael Muller 7. Michael Muller. What's the seven about? Because someone, you know, it's, yeah, what is that? Like someone had Michael Muller, but they uh -huh. don't post. There's like one, two posts. They took my name. But, yeah. Uh, the ice bath. I love the, man, from traveling, the ice and heat. Mm -hmm. Change my like if, when I get off a plane after 16 hours, it resets my body, all mm -hmm. the inflammation out. Um, it's phenomenal. So, right from ice up to your, my neck, two to four minutes into the sauna, and then back into the ice, back into the sauna. Darren was telling me you always show up at the workout with like the big cupping marks on your back. Yeah. Yeah. I get a lot of cupping done. Uh -huh. I do a lot of, I mean, my body, I'm like an old beaten up gladiator. So, to keep this 50 year old machine working, it requires a lot of yeah. like Thai massage with them walking on me or, you know, and then a lot of like just, um, it's almost sadistic what they do to me, but my body's like Kevlar. It's like knotted Kevlar. Uh -huh. so, yeah. But yeah, cupping's Anyways, great. Cool, Except man. when they take the cup and go like that. Yeah. All right. Well, come back and talk to me again. When the when the VR thing is out in the world, we yeah, come back and share about sure, that a little bit sure. more. For sure. When the VR is out, when Cam's out, yeah, they'll, we'll definitely come back. Cool, for man. sure. Anytime. This was great. All right. Thank you, brother. Thank Peace. you, everyone. Plants. Holy shit, man. Wasn't that unbelievable? Isn't Michael Muller incredible? Probably one of the most badass people I've ever met. So delighted to have him on the show today. Hope you guys enjoyed that. If you dig what he's about, give him a follow on the socials at MichaelMuller7 on Instagram and at MichaelMuller77 on Twitter. Also check out his website, MullerPhoto.com for some insanely gorgeous photography that will absolutely blow your mind. As always, check the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com. We got tons of links to immerse yourself in the life experience of Michael and all the amazing work that he has done and is doing. We have another roll-on AMA edition of the podcast coming up soon. If you'd like your question considered and answered on the show, leave me a voicemail at 424-235-4626. If you'd like to support the work we do here on the show, subscribe, rate, and comment on it on Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, and on Spotify. Hitting those subscribe buttons is super important. If you haven't done that yet, please do me a favor and do that. Very helpful, only takes a second. Thank you. Also, please share the show and your favorite episodes with friends or on social media. I love seeing all the screen grabs on Instagram. And you can support us on Patreon at richroll.com donate. Thanks to everyone who worked very hard to produce today's show. Jason Camiello for audio engineering, production show notes, and interstitial music. Blake Curtis for videoing and editing today's program for YouTube. 
Jessica Miranda for graphics, Davey Greenberg for portraits, DK David Kahn for advertiser relationships, and theme music, as always, by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate you guys. I love you. How good was that today? That was so good. Setting the bar high. See you back here soon with another great episode. Until then, face your fears. Move towards them. Don't be afraid. Inch towards it. Leap towards it and see what happens. Peace. Plants. Namaste.